Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital media production. Second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today, Zoom's Andy Carluccio will be here. Uh, there haven't been any announcements yet, but I, I feel it in the air. <laughs> I think that right before we start our show, uh, hopefully we'll see some announcements that we can ask. Uh, so keep your eyes out uh, for those announcements, and we'll be talking to Andy about those uh, if, if, they, if they occur. Otherwise, Andy will just have to tap dance for an hour. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. But let's go ahead and uh, jump into the questions. A quick reminder that you can ask questions throughout the hour uh, for the first hour or the second hour, um, and make sure to vote on those questions. Those really define when we talk about them. So you're really, as the as the viewers, defining our uh, runner show. Okay, go ahead, Bill. What do we got? Chris Widener starts us off this morning from Lafayette, Indiana. And Chris says, current thinking on audience member voting during a live show. I was thinking Slideo. Is there anything more fun? I just don't want them to have to download an app to do an audience favorite vote. Yeah, um, Chris, you should probably just reach out to me. <laughs> we have some tools that we don't use uh, in... Makana that that might be useful for you. <laughs> so so like we can we can look at uh, we're we're doing more work with letting folks within this group at least uh, use Makana for a variety of different things, uh, and we're trying to experiment. So you may have an interesting use case for us. Um, the thing to think about with with voting is making sure that it doesn't feel forced. And so um, so one of the things that you you want to look at there is. Uh, is it really an authentic question that you have for the audience, or are you just trying to, you know, gin up some interaction, something to feel like it? And so, if it's a really authentic question, then um, you know, the, do you really care about this, or is this important to you? Those things are interesting. When it comes to fun, um, the best way to figure out what to do, and this takes a little bit of work, and we're willing to talk to you about this if you if you want to reach out, um, but figuring out ways that the audience can interact with physical items in the uh, in the on the stage, like in the show, like they can affect lights, they can turn things on and off, and that's possible, <laughs> you know, very possible. Uh, but thinking about ways to do that makes it really fun. Uh, and we we're starting to I'm starting to talk about it a little bit more because we don't talk about it that much in general, mostly because we consider it what we call fissionable material, which is that every time we do it, the audience gets so enthralled with it that, it, that the event kind of blows up. <laughs> so, so you just have to know that what I'm telling you right now is something that you want to start with small audiences. We started with large audiences and literally took down, you know, major social network events. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, it, it turns out that certain social networks can't handle 140,000 interactions a minute. So, uh, so you just need to think about um, that process. Uh, but if you have a smaller audience and you want to play with something, the audience can get very into it. Uh, and we can talk more about that. Um, next question. Michael Marsh is up next from San Anselmo, California. HDMI cable passes video and audio from a Blu-ray player to LG TV just fine. But that same HDMI cable to an LG, LG computer monitor, there's no audio. What is happening here and is there a workaround? And he also notes that HDMI works fine for audio from the laptop. Go ahead, Alex. Well, the first thing that came to mind was that Blu-ray players, they're going to have content protection, and you need a monitor that supports HDCP. Now, I'm guessing if it's a computer monitor, it probably doesn't support that, so it's probably most likely that. The other thing is, I don't know, does this computer ha monitor have built-in speakers? I'm not sure why you would even want to hear it through those terrible speakers, so that's a whole other thing. Yeah, I mean, it could be a setting in the in the monitor that it's looking for audio in a different format, so it could be being delivered to it at... So 
one thing that could be happening is that it it's delivering to you as it's the the computer computer monitor is expecting the format to be uh, stereo, and for whatever reason, it's delivering it as surround, or it's delivering it as some other format that the that the that the monitor doesn't recognize. If it was DHC or HTCP, which is the the protection, the content protection that Alex is talking about, I think you wouldn't see you wouldn't see the image either. Usually, you'd see either a warning or you'd see no image at all. So, if you're seeing an image and no audio, it's probably some kind of audio configuration uh, with the monitor. If you see nothing then it's an HTCP uh, check, you know, because basically what happens is, is that it's the, the source, the Blu-ray, will send out the HTCP signal. It needs to get a return. If it doesn't get a, return, a handshake back, it, you know, so if something doesn't have it, it just won't do anything. And so that's, that's most likely what, um, you know, that would be, but that would be no picture and no audio. But no audio is probably a configuration issue. And, but I would go back to Alex. You should never listen to anything through a monitor. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. And this might not be relevant, but I do know that in the U.S. at least, there used to be a kind of a gotcha, which was video could be passed with um, some sorts of content protection. Audio was in a little different category because of certain surveillance laws and things like that from the old phone era. And they had to blank out audio on some devices that I knew of before because they got in the way of that law. And so I'm not saying that's here, but that used to be a thing we had to think about. Sometimes audio wouldn't work because they made it not work for those reasons. For some reason, I thought when you said gotcha, you were going to say that they had a gotcha that the video killed the radio star. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for some reason. I was waiting for you to say that. I don't know why. of MTV. Next question. Let's go to Andy Kokendorfer's question from Vieira, Florida. DJI Inspire 3, big news today, uh, just announced a full-frame sensor and interchangeable lenses. So there's a review on NewsShirter that he linked to. This came out yesterday, and I, I did look. I didn't watch the whole video, I just watched, but I did cut through the site to look at it. And I really, looking at the Inspire 3, I really just wanted to quit everything I was doing. And this guy, I just want to be a drone operator. <laughs> it is the, um, I don't have all the specs sitting right in front of me, but it is an insane, uh, insane upgrade. Go ahead, guy. Yeah, to look at some of these specs, wow. I mean, 8K, 75 frames per second, ProRes RAW, or you can do Cinema DNG, dual native ISO. Uh, it's a 1 over 1.8 ultra-wide night vision FPV camera. That's why I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding this. So it's a full-frame plus. Is there a smaller camera or something on there? I think there's a smaller camera on it as well. Um, gotcha. Yeah, I see the smaller camera above it. Um, yeah, there's, there's two different, two different uh, modes, I think, that it goes into there. Um, but the, I mean, the, the image quality just, I mean, it, it looks insane, like just insane. And, and, uh, so yeah, there's an FPP camera on the head and then there's, then there's the, I think it's the Zen mouse X9, which is, is below it, which is, um, I, I didn't find a, a page that was just dedicated to the camera, but it is, um, it just, you know, looks, it's full frame sensor, 8K, 4K, is it 4K 120 or 100? Is it, um, it's a high frame rate. It's 8K 25. Right, but what, the, the 4K was 120, I believe, um, huh. and so, uh, so yeah, it, it it's a it it just looks like a monster. Um, it's a good time to be a drone operator. <laughs> Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, it does look amazing. Do we know if they developed their own camera sensor technology? I don't see anywhere where it says where they're sourcing the sensor, or what they're using. Them. I think they do actually. I, you know, I actually think that they're they're building their own sensors for for these. You know, they've been doing it long enough. Well, they. 
and they, you know, they uh, didn't they buy Hasselblad if I remember correctly. So they, you know, they, but they, um, they, they have their own. Um, uh, they're, I think they're building all their own sensors, and and it's, you know, they, it, the, what we're watching is a company that just really they started really small and and really basic, and they just keep on reinvesting and adding things. And when you're looking at the entire line that DJI does um it's it's kind of amazing you know they they really figured out this next level and, and some of the things that are really cool in the demo is not just to look at the big flying shots they have this dolly system that lets you you know kind of create a, a move and so they show uh, a martial arts scene uh, somewhere on the, on the page where these two folks are going in and the drone comes around like it's you know it's the typical uh, uh crouching tiger hidden dragon kind of thing where you have a uh, a, a, an area in the center and you have kind of an area around it that's wall, all walled in and they have this drone come down and it comes down around and it, it comes up to the folks that are fighting and you know so they run around and it comes over and then they're fighting and then they run off and it pulls back and, and all of that's all pre-programmed but it just is an amazing shot and, and I think that there's going to be a lot of shots that this is really getting to the point where you could really use these in a lot of films and just you're going to see this this kind these kind of shots that that you don't even know how you would do those with a with a crane or a jib you know a techno crane or a jib just couldn't pull these shots off you know and so i think that and, and you can get it obviously because it's a drone you can get into places that you wouldn't normally be able to get into to get these shots and so i think that it really is going to take filmmaking i mean this is really a camera that takes filmmaking to another level go ahead bill yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, just think how far and how fast these uh, clamor platforms, which is what I really consider that kind of drone to be, it's going to disrupt a lot of things. I can imagine the real estate industry is just going to be swamped with these kinds of things. Uh, it, what you're doing with USDZ, the fact that you have that much resolution, you're able to do measurement and, and a whole bunch of other stuff in there. Uh, we're living in interesting times. I do worry about so much capture of data going through their system Um particularly geographic and stuff like that but it, it that's the world we live in now yeah so it's it's going to be it's pretty nifty uh next question next one comes to us from hasma gajar friend in cape town south africa spx graphics for zoom is live the beta has been launched with some limited functionality steep discounts to go pro during the beta phase i'm just about comfortable with h2r graphics panel should i learn and purchase this zoom add-on i go ahead john I just got off the off Discord with Tuomo. He just got on a plane and he's excited for the next twelve hours. He'll be in the air and he's hoping to have some nice comments from the group so you can go install it. <laughs> go ahead, you Alex. Can go install it after after the show's over. Go ahead, Alex. Well, you know, if you're comfortable with something, if you're getting a lot of good use, obviously H two R is good. It's well respected. Then I would say don't just go to something else immediately unless you think there's a real need. There's functionality there that you need, but. Having not used H2R graphics, I will just say I saw the demo video of how this works, and it's an instant buy for me. <laughs> it looks amazing. Yeah, I, I, we of course, as a, as a note, we use SPX for the show, so all the graphics that you see here are being generated by SPX. Um, I think that I mean, it looks it looks amazing. Um, I and I have to admit that I haven't, I don't have as much experience. I really think that that John Barker's done a lot of great work with H2R graphics. Um, I, and I've seen a lot of good work. I, I haven't used it as much myself. So I have most of my experiences looking at what we've done with SPX. Uh, and I will say that, so I don't want to compare them as much as to say that the SPX solution looks unbelievable. <laughs> like so, so I, so I think that it's pretty good, but I would, I would look at all of the announcements that happened today 
um, and all the announcements that we talk about over next week, just to understand the entire picture of what's happening with uh, with Zoom ISO and Zoom. I think that there's going to be a lot of interesting announcements uh, over the next couple of days, maybe even this morning. Um, next question. John Preto is up next from Las Vegas. Been playing with a new scripting tool for GPT called Auto GPT. Wanted to share it with the group. Go ahead, John. This is the number one trending uh, project on GitHub right now. It's had like 57,000 votes in, in two weeks. This thing is amazing. It allows you to concatenate and put in goals into your search. And it it searches. It, will ha- it has an API into GPT-4, GPT-3, but also into the web. And it's got short-term and long-term memory. So the thing that people are using this for is absolutely amazing to concatenate a, a mission together, like go out and find all the events that are upcoming and make a recipe for each one of these things is one of the examples. Uh, so is it AI book, to run your AI? It's it's uh, it's a scripting <laughs> language to run your AI. That's what it's it like, is. It's like my have my people talk to your people. Like soon we're going to have AI that you're going to have an AI um, that, that, that writes the things in. I just want to have a lot of good events. I need you to write this and then ask ChatGPT to write that. And then, and then before, and it's just like someone just kind of thinks of something and then there's a whole bunch of people and things and eventually robots, you know, that's, that's exactly what it is. I've got my script running now, make money until 1 billion loop. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh man. Okay, go ahead, Bill. May may my G I G P T dom major domo talk to yours. Yeah, exactly. Have my, have, soon have, have my people talk to your people. Is going to be have my G P T talk to your G P T. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's crazy. I will say this is just uh, maybe it's so important and it's so flooding through there and it's so fresh that maybe a second hour or even an after hour seminar for from people like John who's really conversant to help. Everybody in our community get even more up to date on what is the best syntax? What are you discovering about prompts and things like that? What strategies are working and where is it going? I definitely think we need to do more labs. And we're going to probably talk about AI nearly once a month, you know, as we as we keep going forward. And April's a little different because of NAB and planning and so on and so forth. But as we go into the next, uh, you know, expect to see um, uh, AI be something that we talk about a lot because it's important for us to understand I'm not that concerned about it as I mean, I have some concerns about AI, but I'm not as concerned as many people are. I think that the real power is that there's a lot of creativity that people have. They have ideas and they just have no ability to do them. And, and, and they would not do them in the, there's many things in the world that just don't exist because it would take too many people. It would take too much work. It would take too much. So this, it, it's not that it's not that it's taking work away from someone. It just doesn't come into existence. Um, you know, before Photoshop, there's many things that we did in Photoshop and many things we do now in Photoshop that would never exist if we still were using Cytex. You know, Cytex was the big, and it took a lot of work. And, and before the Cytex, it was cutting, you know, cutting everything out and laying it all out. There are many magazines that wouldn't exist. There's many ideas that wouldn't exist. All of YouTube wouldn't exist without the video cameras that, that came, at, came after them. Things come into existence because the tools make them available to come into existence. And so when we think about the things contracting, we're, when we think about people losing their work, their job or their livelihood, we're assuming that it is a zero sum game that 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 we are having that as this comes out, it's simply going to replace people doing the same thing rather than 
it's going to expand all the things that are happening because now we can say, one person can say, I can do this thing that's bigger. And when you think about that, you know, it's giving a lot more people the power that a director has. When a director directs a movie, they don't use the, many of them, some of them do, but many of them don't use the camera. They don't do the storyboards. They don't write the script. They don't do all of those things. People do that for them, you know, <laughs> and those people will continue to do that for quite some time because it takes a lot of work and they still get it wrong most of the time. Um, and so, uh, but, but what's going to happen is, is that when I want to pitch a movie, for instance, instead of having to have the money or the whatever to, to hire someone to, to do a storyboard, to do a thing, I'm going to be able to come up with these ideas and they're just all going to, I'm going to build a whole, all the storyboards and the concepts and the bits and pieces. And, and I'm going to be able to go out and, you know, shoot that. I may not have any of those skills, but I have an idea. You know, and the ideas and that, and the people with just ideas are going to be very dangerous. <laughs> you know, they're still creative, but they don't necessarily have all those skills. And that, a lot of things have been held back by that. So I think this is, I think it's going to be a huge opportunity and we'll keep on talking about it. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael comes up next and he says, what challenges arrive with production in a house of worship environment that you don't find in other settings? Good guy. Yeah, I would say that there's there's a lot of benefits. One of them is that um, it's a regular show, so they usually have everything pretty dialed in, so you're not getting caught up in some of the surprises of irregular shows. Uh, I would say the one of the biggest challenges is just uh, volunteers for, for our church. It's one of those things where is that person going to show up? Uh, if somebody gets sick, do you have a, a third person to go to? If all of a sudden you're having to do the PTZs, uh, plus run audio, plus do graphics. And I've seen it at a lot of churches. They, they One person can do it all. Uh, but that's where um, y- you got to have you got to have this, the chops, and this is why I love to have people volunteer at churches because it gives you uh, an opportunity to get in front of gear that you normally wouldn't. And sometimes the the, the budget can be another constraint where uh, a church will cheap out on some stuff or cheap out on the number of mics. We finally got an XR18 at our church. Uh, There's a big, huge house sound that was installed, but we needed additional control for things like um, our annual Christmas. Um, choir um, uh, concert and that that requires like 19 microphones so i was running that at our last event and we still needed more stuff and i was like more cables was a last minute amazon purchases so it, it's just a matter of uh letting the leadership know what you need and, and making sure that you have all the tools that you need but if it's a big budget church then awesome i've seen some that have just amazing atem switchers uh, aj recorders uh, pro presenter 18 licenses of pro presenters so the They've got the Bible verses um, on a prompter or another projector behind you, or so the the preacher can look out across the uh, the entire uh, uh, audience and still be looking at the back wall on a huge uh, prompter, so they can sing along and know the the verses or what's coming up. So yeah, that's another challenge is Bible verses where it's like impromptu, where it's like you got to pull it up quick. So if they say John three sixteen, you're like, oh, where is it? And, you get you get into a rhythm though. You, you you start to figure out what people do, and you have all those needs, all the the little HDMI cables and adapters, all the USB C to HDMI, and you usually get into a rhythm. You don't you don't get surprised too much. Yeah, I walked into a. Uh, I think I've mentioned this before, but I walked into a church and and it had a. C, a Yamaha CL5, you know, for the for the mixing board, and it had studio cameras and a big switcher, and it had you know just an incredible. I mean, it was look. I mean, it was a broadcast, like it was really full on, full on broadcast. And I was like, wow, this is a lot to put into a church. And, and 
<laughs> the person running it said, it's a lot easier to find volunteers. <laughs> like, and he goes, we used to have a smaller kit with little candy cams and everything else. And he goes, yeah, you just feel like you're working really hard for, no, you know, then people feel like they're working, you know, at, at it. I said, when they, when they feel, or he, he told me when they feel like they're, they get to learn how to use what you would see in a broadcast, they, you know, he said, we have a line out the door of people want, that want to, you know, they'll jockey for position for a long time. Like he said, it takes to volunteer on his team, you have to volunteer for six months before you get to touch most of the gear. Like, you know, like it's and like that's every Sunday. Like they want people, they want people who are serious um, to be in there. And he said, it, but so it's a really interesting mix. It costs them a lot of money to get to that point, but then they have this kind of un, and I, I don't think you need to go as far as they went to do that. But I do think that uh, House of Worships have a lot of trouble when they try to go, I'm going to use a little analog Behringer mixer and some, you know, HV20s and we're going to do the best we can and have people volunteer. That's a lot harder to find people. Labor is the real thing. And the, it's much easier to find if you get a relative, it doesn't have to be the nicest ATEM switcher, but like the new one that just came out with some good, ATEM, you know, good Blackmagic cameras and a, and a solid like X32 or the new Yamaha that came out and, it's not a. It's not the massive investment I just talked about, but it's still you feel like you're working on nice stuff that you wouldn't be able to own at home, you know. And and it gives you a sense and and really focusing on the other thing I think that people have trouble with with, with volunteers is that they they want to be light on them and not correct you know poor work. Um, you you got to be gentle about it, but people want to be good at things. And so when you when you give them, if you have someone there that does know what the difference is and can't, and try, finding that one volunteer that came out of broadcast or came out of production that's going to drive everybody to do better work, when they're proud of their work, they're much more excited to come back. <laughs> you know? And so, and so um, people who do a lot of things that just feel when they look at it later, it looks kind of like, oh, it's just okay. They may volunteer for a while because they care about the church, but they're, but they're not getting the fulfillment that they could get if they were doing something that looks amazing and the tools now for the price can look amazing next question next question comes to us from scott gorman in cindy australia as an operator how should i configure my talkback for zoom iso light and vmix should i use a vmix bus or join the zoom call on another mac and interested to hear the panel's talkback solutions yeah the i mean the talkback that we use currently in own I know we have we still bring people well we have we're going to stop doing it because it's just too much trouble but we were using zoom rooms and put a, you know a person into every room one person at a time so that we have talk back into each room which means we have talk back into every to every person just within their zoom they just join and and and, and they get we get that talk back uh when we don't do that we usually use unity so we just give them a we have them open that's what we're doing here a lot all of us i think are on comms and i have a unity um window opened on my um, on my computer and that's mixed into my return and so i um so that i can hear someone talking on comms to me if i if if needed or all of us can and and i think that unity is probably the cost most cost effective way to to do it well <laughs> because you need it's not just once you start doing things where you have an extra bus or zoom calls or whatever those are all still like one pl and one uh you know i think that you're better off with unity because you can have directs to each person you can have pls so you can talk to all the guests you know all the guests or just the host or or the hosts or whatever you need to do so i think that that's uh, it's it's a pretty good use case for it and it opens on on any device uh, to make that actually work we've had somewhere we we've used other things like uh, clearcom's agent ic and we have 
we give them two sets of headphones. One is the one they open up on their phone and they set it down, and the other one they they put uh, in they put the show in their ear and they get that return as well. Uh, next question. Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada comes up next and he asks, has anyone tried show documentation software like VOR? And it's from getvor.app. VOR is a tool that allows contextual information like timecode, OSC, and LXQ data to be overlaid onto an incoming video field, which, feed, which can then be saved as a simple movie file. You know, they, they really need to do a movie. <laughs> about what it is like so you, I, you go, I went to the web page after I saw your 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 question Greg and looked through it and really tried to figure out what it was doing and I just didn't see uh maybe it's there but literally the first thing that should be on that page is a movie of what it actually does like just a screen capture because I couldn't uh I couldn't quite grok what was actually happening uh, when I looked at it so so I think that that's that's the thing I, it looks interesting uh and and I think that it could be a really cool tool, but I just couldn't visualize it. And when you search for VOR on YouTube, you get a whole bunch of other things that are related to flight. <laughs> so so I, I, I didn't see any, it was hard to find anything that really showed how it actually worked. A quick reminder that you can ask questions anytime during the first or second hour. So go ahead and throw those questions into Makana. Um, you can or and also vote on those questions uh, and help us uh, figure out what we should be talking about next. All right, next question. Alexander Knight here on the panel comes up next from Vancouver, BC. What do we think of the new Sony flagship 4K HDR monitor, particularly the BVM HX3110? I don't see a price attached. The specs look nice. Hey, if you have to ask for the price, you can't afford it. <laughs> that's, that's what this monitor is. The specs look unbelievable. Now, I've used earlier uh, versions of this monitor, uh, the 310, and uh, it's 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 a wonderful monitor. This one has, a, I believe, if I looked at it correctly, it's a four thousand nit, uh, you know. So it, it's a very, very bright four thousand nit uh, monitor. Um, and and you know, a lot of people talk about four, thousands of nits and oh, it's going to burn your eyes out. Just remember, if you're walking against a white wall in a in a alleyway, not even direct sunlight, and you actually probe that white wall in shadow while you're walking through there. It's at nine thousand nits. Like, like we've we've seen tests of that, so we're used to looking at a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of brightness. Uh, you know, we we have tools in our eyes that adjust for that. So uh, I don't think it's as dangerous as people talk about. It, but four thousand nits is great. And and one of the things that's interesting about it, as we start to see these higher nit ranges, the color and even the nature of the color changes as you go up. I was watching a demo of an, not this monitor, but another monitor that was 4,000 nits. And they showed it in SDR and they looked fine. And then they showed it at 1,000 nits. And we were like, oh, wow, that looks amazing. And then we spent the next 20 minutes talking about 1,000 nits versus it. And then they said, and now we're gonna open the same image with 4,000 nits. And it was a different image, like a different image than the 1,000 nit and the 100 nit, which is standard dynamic range, just looked like mud. <laughs> like it was just like, just mud. And and it's really hard for, it's one of the reasons that we're trying, you know, we're, it's taking us a little time, but we're moving towards HDR for the show is that when we talk about HDR soon, if you're sitting at a home uh, TV, you'll be able to see it. You'll be able to actually, we can say, this is what SDR looks like and this is what HDR looks like. Because right now, every time we talk about this, you can't see it because we don't have anything to show it to you. And <laughs> so, so, um, so we're working, we're very close to making that, that all work. The the monitor though it also has what one of the things I was really excited about which maybe in the three ten but I don't think so I don't think I saw it before this is a four K monitor and it will do a split it'll do a split of four different images and all those images can have 
um, an e- a different EOTF. So um, so it's so electro optical transfer function. And so what that means is you can say this is SDR, this is uh, this is your HLG. This is you know you can have different LUTs in four different things, that, and it's accurately showing you. I don't know if I've ever seen that before. <laughs> like a monitor that will give me four different ones in those regions. Which is, uh, so, I mean, for people who are doing this production, they're going to be like, yeah, whatever. You just tell me how much, what car, what sports car I'm not buying to have this monitor in, you know, one of these in the facility. I don't think you're going to buy, I mean, some people might buy a lot of them, but some, it's, I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, go ahead, Alex. Yeah, this is somewhat tangential. I don't know if you've heard about this, but obviously the kind of people that are using these monitors for color grading are doing serious film work. But is there any discussion about because there always seems to be some kind of translation issue with consumer tvs and hdr because almost none of them are perfectly calibrated out of the box some are better than others and is that something that people are actually thinking of is that in the back of their mind how is this translating to the average consumer television yeah yeah so the, the dolby spends a lot of time working on that and so there is a you know there's a that's what they're trying to work out. It's still a challenge because there's lots of different TVs. The unfortunate thing really is, is that Dolby put their kind of put Dolby vision on everything. And so to make sure that they got market, you know, adoption, but I think that the implementation of that Dolby is different. What you want to be looking for is Dolby IQ and Dolby IQ has a sensor in the, it it has a sensor in the monitor that is looking at ambient light and then making some decisions. So what, what happens is, is with, with the, the Dolby system is it has an HDR, but it has metadata that stretches the HDR out to whatever the metadata stretches the highlights and so on and so forth out to what the monitor can do. So if it's a 600 nit, it goes, oh, you can only do this. If it's a 2000 nit monitor, it, it knows that it can take that color a lot further than what it would do otherwise. And so the whole concept behind the Dolby Vision is that it's doing what you're talking about, which is that it's expanding and contracting based on the monitor's capability. And then Dolby, Dolby IQ is taking into account ambient light within the, within the, the location to reproduce the, you know, the intention of the artist, right? The intention of the director or, or you know, this is going to get you where now still an imperfect situation. People are still trying to figure it all out. It's a really complicated problem, but the only company that's really paying it a lot of attention to it in my opinion, is Dolby. Uh, now there is HDR10, but HDR10 is not Dolby Vision, definitely not Dolby Vision IQ, because what HDR10 does, so it, you have HLG, which, which has no metadata. You have you have HDR10, which has metadata for the entire piece. So if, if I have a, watch a movie, there is um, a, uh, uh, there's a midpoint, of, you know, median, uh, exposure, the brightest points, and a red, green, blue trim that goes into the entire product. When you talk about Dolby Vision and HDR10, uh, you are talking about being able to affect that metadata at an every frame. And because that metadata is going, but it's very hard to manage or harder to manage when you do that because some, all the devices have to be able to pass metadata. So when you talk about live production, that becomes difficult because you can't carry it. I mean, you could carry it over bank and people aren't doing that yet. <laughs> and so, And then... And then the um, and then finally you have uh, the the Dolby Vision IQ, which is and and respond that that response to what the monitor can do. So those are the things that are that are still you know kind of a um, it is they are trying to figure that out. Now what you're looking at with the Sony is like this is just what the image is, and you're if you're paying this much for that monitor, 
you are typically in a room that is designed for the monitor. <laughs> like, so it's designed to look at it. Um, and what it really is, I'll, I'll, you know, it's, it's good for, for mastering, but what it's really, really good for is when you're on a live event um, that might want to do HDR, these monitors are gold because you sit there and go, okay, what is actually happening? Like I, I, we, we can figure out what the person at the end is going to look at, but what is actually happening with my image and being able to lock in your, um, you know, you know, the, your, your settings. Um, when we have a 310 on the, on site, it's just really super valuable because I can look at certain things and go, oh, that now I know what I have one version of the truth. There's one monitor in the building that I can look at that I know, I know what that means. Um, and so it's a, it's really valuable. And this is a huge step up, just the quad view, which I, I don't think is, was ex existing on the older monitors. The quad view is, you know, changes everything. So uh, next question. Brett Ballou in Appleton, Washington, uh, Wisconsin, I'm sorry, says for a minimalist MacBook plus Zoom kit in limited space with no room for a desktop mic, would a USB lav mic give an overall better audio quality than the mics in the AirPods or Macs over Bluetooth? Um, maybe. Good guy. Yeah, there's one that we've been using. It's a little $59 Sennheiser USB mic. It's a... Uh, this one right here, uh, it's called the XS Lab uh, USB-C. It's decent. It's still thin. It's not going to be like this radio mic, you know, with a mix pre. Uh, you, you know, it's kind of you get what you pay for. But uh, getting the mic closer to the subject, especially in noisy environments, I, I would prefer some kind of head-worn mic so you can get the mic right there, especially like the trade show type stuff. But a lavalier, it's industry standard, and the $59 one's pretty decent. Tucker has been sending these out in his kits. Um, I think he bought about 12 of these things from us. So they're, they're all right. Good, Bill. Yeah, I 100% agree with what uh, was just said. If you can move the mic from your laptop screen, which is maybe 18 inches away, to the middle of your chest down here, which is five or six inches away, just the inverse square principle means you're going to have a lot less background noise to deal with. You're going to suppress air conditioning or computer sounds and things like that significantly so that your voice stands out. And Guy is exactly right. If you can move that from your chest up to the corner of your mouth, you get orders of magnitude more suppression of background noise. So this is just sound physics 101. We'd have to test it. I mean, the the my experience is the AirPod Pros processing, especially the new ones, is so good that there aren't that many cheap labs that are going to keep up with it in your ear. So it's not coming from your your computer. It's it's in your ear. So it's only got that distance. And if you have a lab, it's going to be further away. And the problem we have with labs in general is that they um, pick up a lot of the room. <laughs> you know, they're they're pretty far away, and they're a small condenser. And I, I agree with with uh, both Bill and Guy that head worn a head worn uh, mic is generally better. We've generally found even cheap head worn mics are better than labs, um, even ex more expensive labs, just because it's so much closer to the person talking. Um, and, and the, again, in a studio environment, the labs work okay. But if you close your eyes and even want, listen to a broadcast and just close your eyes and listen to how bad it is. Like, I mean, I'm talking, I'm talking like ABC this week with George Stephanopoulos or one of those things. And the audio is just horrible, you know, like, and, and it's, and it's all labs and it's all hard surfaces. And, and so that's the real challenge that I, that I have with it, um, is the, is just the reverberance of the room. And the, as you move that lab away, I find that it's not, it's just, uh, you know, I have a hard time listening to it. So, so anyway, so I think that that's the, that's the real challenge with labs in general. Um, that's why I tend to lean towards headset mics or, or radio mics, but we send out headsets before we, I haven't sent out a lab in years. 
maybe four or five years, maybe more, 10 years, maybe. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's, I'd rather take a big mic and set it out outside a frame than, than put a lab on somebody generally. Um, next question. Brett Ballou. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, Douglas Carmichael. Here we go. Brett, oh, that was the last one. I'm looking at Verizon's Welcome Unlimited plan, the US $65 for one line for cellular phone service, and they mentioned that data can be temporarily slowed at times of congestion. What has your experience been with said slowing? And he notes he's coming from an AT&T 4G LTE system. Yeah, it means you don't matter. It's horrible. Okay, I have I have the Verizon Unlimited. I have an, I have an older Verizon Unlimited. I have an AT&T Unlimited. Basically means at the end of the month, they're just going to make your phone almost unusable. So, um, you know, I'm looking at getting rid of all of those, but you just have to, uh, you know, they, it's, it's really not a good, not a good deal. Um, next question. Next question comes from some Scott Gorman in Sydney, Australia with connection, which connection should I search for in companion to utilize zoom ISO? The tutorial, the YouTube video is from August 21, uh, August of 2021 seems to be out of date. It would be great if these tutorials could be updated to be compatible with the latest Zoom ISO version. Yes. The, the, the constant problem of keeping up with software as it keeps changing. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, I just glanced down at the chat and Andy Carluccio answered and says, uh, Zoom OSE ISO and Companion V3. So you want the newest version. Like I'm, I'm not running that one yet, so that's why I didn't see the, the new one. So, yep, there you go. We'll be talking a lot more about this as we go through the next couple months. <laughs> so stay tuned. Uh, but yeah, the older ones are not there, but, but you want to have all the new versions and I would, a lot of new stuff is coming. Next question. Liberty White in Atlanta, Georgia says, what are some of the best plagiarism tools that you've found to review your AI generated content? Plagiarism tool. I don't know if I, I don't know. I don't pay much attention to it. I, I don't, given that. I'm not plagiarizing that I that I know of most of the time. I don't have a lot of tools to to try to figure it out. Go ahead, Bill. I don't think you know plagiarism is going to be really tough in the world of Chat GPT because they're using these giant data sets and they're taking little pieces of this and that. So who knows if anything that Chat GPT comes up with has any relation to the current plagiarism laws and therefore remedies you know how do you how do you go in and tell things well i think i wrote the thing that chat gpt looked at to turn into this for these other things it's it, this is another case where technology is way outstripping law and any sort of regulatory framework to make these cases i think that's it's too nasty a rat's nest right now go working John. too fast no win situation just as bill articulated there embrace the future <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that the the issue is is that the that I what I do, what I've done with ChatGPT to just see what it looks like is I copy and paste things out of ChatGPT and paste them into the and just do a Google search and throw them in like is this showing up in some other document and very rarely do I see a one to one relationship enough that you would call it plagiarism you know like it, you know like and that that's the that's the difficulty with a lot of these things is that I don't. I don't see it. I don't, I, I just can't find it, you know, word for word um, in there or, and I can't find even concepts around it usually. You know, it's it's coming up with something and it's such a mix of so many sources like we are that it would be hard, it'd be saying, well, I read a hundred books and then I have opinions and those opinions are a, a, a function of those books, but I don't know where, what part of what book I, I did it in. And I think that the concept of that, that concept of, of that process, and I, and I, 
I will say that I've always been a little bit leery of, there's been a, uh, you know, this is a historical thing for the last couple thousand years. People are really protective of, of content. Uh, we're very quickly approaching a point where co the content itself is worthless. Like it is, you know, like it's not that you have to do something with it, but the holding, like trying to hold on to value for content is is just, it's bleeding out. Like, and, and so the thing is, is that you're not, you know, so everyone who's holding on to content, whether it's the thing that they wrote or the thing that they did or the whatever, it's not about that. It's gonna be about how, you know, generating connections with other people, building things that people want, you know, things that are not, you know, that it's not about the IP itself. It's about what it builds, you know, with it. And I think that you're gonna see, you know, more of this, this, this became a, this has been a thing for most of my career. People talk about whether you sampled something or whether you took something or whether you did something. And then you look at something like TikTok. Like TikTok is really popular for a lot of reasons, but one of it is, is there's no sense of ownership. So people put things up and expect people to do something with it. They expect people to copy their thing. They expect to, and, and, it, and no matter how hard other platforms try, they have a hard time making it as fun and move as fast as TikTok because the entire expectation when you walked in was that everyone was going to copy everybody's stuff. And, and that is a, and, and I think that, that as that continues to move forward and what ChatGPT and MidJourney and all these other things are, are doing is they're saying, well, anybody can do this. So holding on, trying to protect that content is not, and I learned this by, I used to hold on to all the knowledge that I had because that's what I thought was making money for me. And I learned that it was the network, the people. <laughs> as soon as I have the knowledge, I want to give it to everyone else because that helps me connect to everyone around me by sharing what I know. I don't try to hide anything anymore, you know, unless it's under NDA because, because the knowledge is invaluable. The people that, I'm, that are in my network are valuable and that's what makes things work. Go ahead, Bill. There's another piece to the puzzle, and it's it, it's interesting for me because I, as a writer, I, I used to write little things and commercials and things like that, and then I finally landed a gig at, at a magazine, and I was a, a staff writer, and I wrote for 10 years eventually. I wrote the computer editing column for Video Maker Magazine, and in that 10 years, I really became better because I was writing on deadline. I was learning how to do it. So now we fast forward into this era where you can put a prompt into ChatGPT, and you can get your little article popped out that's most of of what was there. I, back when I was writing for my clients, had a line item above the line, and it was, you know, script development consultation, and it might be a couple of thousand dollars for a big corporate thing because I really had to spend significant amounts of time researching, pulling that information in, and turning that into a viable script for my client. Is now somebody going to have that thing and just have ChatGPT fill it out and trying to get, you know, oh, that's great for my business. I get $2,000 for my script and ChatGPT is going to write it for me. The thing that bothers me is that the, the young people who are not going through that process of learning to craft sensible content from the writer's perspective. And will that start making everything homogenized, everything sound the same, less diversity because you got less different people crafting I, through I, writing I, content. I'm sorry, but, I but I watch TV shows now and I can, the problem is I've worked on them too long and I can see the formula. And know. so, you know, it's like you, you see, it's like watching the matrix. You kind of see, oh, I see what they're doing here. They're doing this, 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 and this, and everything's formulaic. <laughs> like, you know, so everything's formulaic. And so I, I just feel like I have a hard time going around it because it's just like, you know, it's just taking all the formulas and making it the access to anybody. But, but a lo so much of what we do, whether it's ad copy or other things like that, there's a formula. You know, I have a formula to how I do presentations. I'm going to 
I'm going to set the stage. I'm going to tell you what's wrong. I'm going to tell you that there's a fix. And I'm going to tell you what the fix is. And then I'm going to go back and talk about what was wrong again. And I'm going to come back and tell you what the fix is. That's all I do, like in a presentation, you know, and, and, and so it's, a, it's how I fit those in and how I talk about those things. I think it'll, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, that the pencil, you know, the, the pencil didn't mean that there was a lot more writers. <laughs> like, you know, like there's just a certain level. And I think people are always going to, and again, I think the communities are going to rise up around this. The, the, the power of the, the value of a community is going to be way more valuable than the content in the not too distant future. Go ahead, John. So it's, it's, uh, it's important to understand how, how these transformers, large language models work. So generative pre-trained transformer, what it does based upon 175 billion parameters is guess the next word in the sentence. And so it's not taking snippets of code or snippets of stuff from the web. It's generating the possible next word in the sentence. And so it's completely different than a database search. If you've ever, if you've ever done, uh, I think what John's talking about, I don't know if you've ever done this or not, but I do it every once in a while for fun. If I'm waiting for something is, I'll start a text with someone. I won't ever send it or most of the time I won't send it, but I'll start something and I'll say something. And then I just pick the three, one of the three words that it auto fills for the next thing. And so it's, so it's doing a simple version of this and I'll, and I can make, and I'll make something, some sentence that is just absurdly funny or cool or whatever, just by selecting three words. Now it's doing that, but it's doing it with 175 uh, billion parameters, you know, and so, um, so that's the, so that's all it's doing is going, I see this word, I'm going to go to the next word. I see this word and I go, based on what I know, I'm going to go to the next word, but it's the same as that little thing. When you text, if you open up your text and you hit a, hit a, hit a word and it asks you what the next word is, that's a simple version of it. (laughs) It's a, this is a big version of that, uh, and to make that happen. And so that's why you rarely get any kind of one-to-one relationship. And it's the same thing that's happening with, uh, your mid journey. It's just making those pictures and it's what's, what's the next piece of that? What's the next layer of that is based on what was there. And, and those, that's why you don't see copies very often, unless you really push at it. Maybe anybody who says there's a copy coming out of mid journey is usually prompting it in such a specific way that it's getting that thing. Um, next question. Next question comes to us from Tommy Chance in St. Paul, Minnesota. What would some options for ATEM control with companion, what would be some uh, options for ATEM control with companion other than the stream deck? A good guy. Yeah, I mean, just using the regular ATEM software control on a touchscreen computer is pretty handy. The, the other nice thing is um, uh, being able to just open up a browser window. So with companion, you could mimic those keys in a browser window. So just running on a regular, you know, Chrome uh, window, and then you can touch those. So a touchscreen is really handy, or you can use a mouse. I like the tactile feel of a button. If I'm doing a show for days, I need to be able to just not even look at the button. So in that mode, you can use something like X key. So you can get a really cheap, not really cheap, but they make some that are that are smaller buttons, like a 32 would be a standard though. X keys 32 would be the one to, to map, or there's actually some profiles already made. Other options, um, iPad with uh, Strata or MixEffect is another way to go. Or there's a central control if you have a PC, and then you can use um, even some of the controllers from, from NewTek or uh, anything that speaks OSC, uh, TCP. So there, there's a variety of things that you can use if you don't want to just use. Oh yeah, and then the other thing is there's a Stream Deck app that you could get for like three ninety nine a month, and you could map things on on that as well so with Companion. So those are a couple of the ways that you might want to might want to go with that. 
All right, the next question come. Let's go to the next question, which is from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. And he says, how do you analyze your activity, health, and fitness data from your Apple Watch or other fitness device? Do you ever use a third-party analytic app like Exist.io? And I'm the only person who raised my hand on it before I, I grab the con here for a second. So I will say... The Apple Watch has been transformative for a lot of things for me, and probably the single biggest impact it's had on me has been my health. Um, I didn't realize it was going to make as big a difference as it has, and it's not through third-party apps. And maybe, you know, if you're a competitive performer, if you want to uh, get ready for a 10K or you decide you're going to run a marathon for the first time, it may be the perfect tool for you. I'm not. I'm not looking for that. I was looking to get out of the pandemic. I wanted some minor motivation to just start getting healthier after spending those months of not being very healthy. And my watch turned out to be an amazing uh, goad for me to actually do it. And really, it's the simple basic thing in the Apple Watch, the closing of the rings thing. At first, I dismissed it and I thought, this is silly. This isn't, you know, why do I care whether my rings are there? But Alex has often said that what matters to you is what you measure and what you measure matters to you. And I'm a believer in that because just the little psychological thing of Oh, that ring isn't closed. The other ones are closed, but that one isn't closed. I have to go take a five-minute walk to get that done. <laughs> I don't know why, but it's really worked for me. And since the pandemic and since I started this process, I'm down about 20 pounds, and I'm a whole lot healthier than I was before. And I think a lot of it has to do with just that simple little feedback loop in my watch. I monitor it daily. I don't feel bad. You know, I get a little badge. Does, does that matter? It really doesn't. And yet somehow it triggers some little thing in the back of my brain that says, you could get another badge if you just do this thing. And it's just the weirdest psychological thing, but it's been a big boon and it's been, been a big win for me. Alex? That's great. Next question. Next one comes from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC. Would a Blackmagic bidirectional converter be the solution for a multi-view monitor to allow me to convert the refresh rate from 60 hertz so that it works with an ATEM set to 2997? Yeah, I don't think that that will work. Um, it's not really designed to do frame rate conversion. It's designed to connect HDMI signals to SDI signals. So the, the, the intention for the bidirectional is that I'm going to have an HDMI go in, I'm going to have two or in and out, and then I'm going to have SDI, and I have one SDI out, one SDI in, so that I can take the ATEM controls and go talk to a HDMI, a Blackmagic HDMI camera. So the bidirectional is really designed for that output. Uh, I don't think it's designed to do any kind of frame rate conversion um, in that area. So what you're probably looking for is something that's going to do some kind of up-down cross. So the you know the AMDHX is a good example. The decimator, um, Blackmagic makes a couple of their own. But you're looking for something that's doing a frame rate conversion, you know, from one thing to the other to make that actually work. And I think that's what you're going to need to do to, to get that to run. Next question. Scott Golf in Jackson, Tennessee is up next. And Scott says, marketing and production jobs can so easily become our lives. How do you all handle work-life balance? Is there a way to have a great career without having to give up a lot of time with your family? Uh, I think that there's the there's a nature of it. The nature of the business is that you're going to need to be available. It's a you know especially for doing live or production, you're going to need to be available. I think that you can set limits. You know, the hard part for setting limits is really it's very hard to do as a freelancer or a small company because if you say no to a client, then they're going to go find somebody else. <laughs> like, you know, so so that so they you know they so you have to be very careful about you know we 
I've definitely had clients where the answer is always yes. Like whenever they say something and then we figure out how to do it. And if they don't have a high frequency, we're okay. But if they have a high frequency, we there's a couple of weeks where we don't get a lot of sleep to make that all happen. Um, you know, building a system around you that can, you know, of, of freelancers, this gets back to the network issue of having lots of people that can help you get those things done can make it much, much easier um, to do to do that. I, I will say that I had no balance uh until until i had to close my company <laughs> you know, so so i you know it was uh because it was uh because i you know and i got to a point where i was like dragging a leg and slurring and you know just because i was i was in so many countries and so many places trying to make make that all work and i do find it you know I, I spend a lot more time with my family now than i did before uh and i think that part of it is is designing your business around what you're going to do and that isn't something that usually happens you're not going to go back to your old clients or your old business and say i've decided that i'm gonna i mean you could Maybe you can, if you've got enough juice, you could probably go back and tell them, I'm not going to do this anymore. It really comes down to how you set up relationships moving forward. So when new new clients come in, uh, you say, well, this is what's possible and this is, and I'm going to charge, you know, we charge more for this and, da, 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 and, and set that up in, in, at the beginning. And then like a tank track, you slowly move to those clients and away from the clients that don't let you do that. Or you go back when you have enough revenue or, to go back to those clients and say, hey, we're going to adjust a couple things. But it's really hard when they're the only it's really hard to have that conversation with a client when they're they're your major bread and butter, you know. So you have to kind of take that into account. Go ahead, Bill. It's also sometimes hard to have these conversations within your family, and if you can't figure out a way to do that, so that everybody on the team, uh, relationships, children, if they're involved, things like that. If everybody under, doesn't understand the, everybody's goals, that you know, by by giving short shrift to this stuff, so that we can work harder over here. We're going to build a future where we don't have to work as hard and we will have uh, other options to spend more time together. If everybody buys into that idea, then you can sometimes change that work-life balance toward work when it's necessary without damaging things. I think the people, and this has just been my experience, if you don't communicate about it and you just decide that I'm going to do this and it's for the family, but you don't realize how much damage that 24-7, 365 being available for work, but not being available emotionally or physically or whatever for your family, you don't realize how much damage that does to the nature of your family. And boy, I will tell you now here in my not young part of my life, the most valuable thing I have are my relationships by a factor of a thousand to one. And yeah. if I had made that mistake and messed those relationships up by being so work focused, I can't even imagine what my I life would be like. And what I will say is that I live inside of the constraints that I've set up, you know, like there's, a, I spend three or four hours with my daughter on Saturday. I spent three or four hours with my son on Sunday. I don't move those times. If they're, if they're here, those are, that's just part of my day. Like I don't consider it something that, oh, I'm working. You know, there are times when I have to go somewhere, but I make it up somewhere else. But it, it's like a hard thing. But, you know, seven weeks, seven weekends out of, the, out of eight, I will be doing something with them. But I don't let that go very often. Um, and I do it very, very reluctantly. Uh, and the, it's made a huge difference. And then also for me, my family also knows though, that when I'm working, I'm not really available until seven o'clock at night <laughs> you know what? Uh, on, you know, on the weekdays. Uh, and, and after that, I'm going to stop and we're going to have dinner and we're going to do things like that. And so I know that I have to get things done by a certain time and they know that they, they haven't, they don't come into my office very often <laughs> before then, because I'm trying to get as much done so that I can, to Bill's point, so that I can hang out with them later. Uh, next question. Gordon Lake in Los Angeles says, could you go over the different tools that use NDI, such as webcams, monitors, mixers, pan tilt, zoom uh, arrangements, and so forth? Uh, go ahead, uh, Guy. 
Yeah, basically you could think of it as transmit and receive. So you have senders like cameras and you have encoders that can take those uh, HDMI and SDI signals and you can turn them into um, a routable signal on the network. So you're talking about Ethernet and some of these cameras would be like power over Ethernet. So you can throw a PTZ up somewhere like in a church as we were discussing earlier and you'd be able to move around. So uh, this is the NDI tool suite where you have, um, this would be, you receive a studio monitor. So this is studio monitor and it has a little PTZ joystick in here and I can kind of move it around and you can set up presets in here. So this signal would be anywhere on the network. So this is an NDI camera that's now anywhere on the network. Um, you also have things like test patterns. So you can throw these uh, different test patterns anywhere on the network. So if I pick, pick my test pattern now in the studio monitor and then I, I change these different um, uh, uh, patterns, I can pick, pick those. Um, there's also things like um, bridge that'll allow you to do this where you encode all your local signals and put them up for somebody else to attach onto. So somebody else at another location can pick up anything on NDI. And there's things like NDI for Premiere and After Effects and VLC where you can do playout. So here I have a, another computer running Premiere and I can have Studio Monitor open or this can be a bird dog play or it can be this TV behind me. Uh, where I can now scrub my timeline. And, and this is just inside of Premiere. Once you install the, the tools, you can go in here and, and you can change your playback over to um, to have this preference for, like I have a Blackmagic deck link inside of this machine, but I also uh, use NDI output so I can throw it anywhere on the network. So that's a pretty, pretty good overview. I mean, you also have uh, apps like um, uh, Livestream Studio. Let me... Pull that up, where you, you can mix all the different signals together. So let's say, for instance, here, uh, I want to throw a graphic or something like that. I, I can put uh, graphics over, over the top. Uh, let's see, this would be a push. So I could throw a lower third in. So this is an app like OBS or vMix would be something that could bring in NDI signals and mix them up with your, your different um, sources and then spit them back out. And I can spit these back out either NDI or I can go to Livestream Studio, uh, their, ser their services, uh, which is Vimeo, uh, or I can push it over to YouTube or a number of places. So there's a lot to NDI that you can do. Uh, I, this, this could be a whole second hour <laughs> of what yeah. NDI is capable of doing. There's more stuff coming out all the time. But yeah, like this little $149 bird dog play, this allows me to receive and kick out an HDMI signal uh, very simply. So it's just Ethernet in and HDMI out and power. Uh, that's a pretty powerful little box. We, I have a lot of Apple TVs here that I use to do the same thing with the Sienna app. So again, it's basically just send and receive, and then you need a good switch to, to be able to do this stuff with, uh, with a, at a professional level where it can be reliable. But that's where I see people having the most issues is they don't get a good switch. They just use like their consumer router and they run into issues. Next question. Claudio Ligari in Rome says, I'd like to know if there exists a program that can be that can use a watch folder with subfolders and can transcode to another codec on another disk or folder. I go ahead, Bill, real quick. We just did this on Tuesday's show. Felipe Baez was here and he has a video on YouTube that really talks about this exact subject. It's on Tuesday shows number 1113, and you can probably find his YouTube channel, F-E-L-I-P-E-B-A-E-Z, Philippe Baez. And I don't know what Philippe 
Felipe sh- sh- uh, showed there. Uh, I use compressor. <laughs> is, is that what he's showing? Is no, he he else? has actually for our coverage in in mm-hmm. at NAB, he's got a watch folder set up. He tosses his 8K document in it, and it does a whole automated process. Oh, it nice. uses cloud resources and other stuff. It's really it. fascinating. I just I I, I used, I'm sure his will be better <laughs> than mine, but I just use Compressor. Compressor, you can set up watch folders and have uh, set up and you throw things in and have it pop out. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael. Razer has introduced their answer to the Stream Deck. The Stream Controller X that uses the Loopback platform. Has anybody ever used a Loopback device? And he's got a link there. Uh, I I have a Loopback device. It's almost somewhere. It's right up here, but I haven't used it as heavily as I want because I mostly just keep on going back to the Stream Deck. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. Next question. Uh, Scott Ballou in Appleton, Wisconsin. Try as I might to keep my teleprompter glass pro- perfectly clean. It somehow gets smudged. What's the best way in products to clean teleprompter glass and prevent dust or smudges? Uh, spray off the dust first with some kind of a compressed air just to make sure that you're not moving anything and then water and a, micro, micro, a new microcloth. I get new ones and I have them sitting in there and I use them. I don't use old ones on a teleprompter glass. Like I don't want anything to have ever touched it. <laughs> a little bit of water and you'll, you'll get it off. Um, but, but just be very, very gentle with that with that glass. Yeah. If you if you have bad water, use mm-hmm. distilled water. That's what I do. Uh-huh. And, and we are now changing subjects. <laughs> so, uh, and for those of you, we've got a bunch of questions that didn't we didn't get to. Just a reminder that those get pushed back to you. You can bring them back in tomorrow morning for uh, for you know or or next week or whenever you feel like it. So it's going to be sent back to your notes. Uh, so, uh, but thanks for all the great questions for the first hour, and we're excited to jump into the second hour with Andy Carluccio from Zoom. Hey, Andy, how's it going? Hey, everybody. Good to see you. Good to see you, Alex, and the rest of the Office Hours team. And so nice to be with you. I'm joining you today live from our San Jose headquarters, uh, just ahead of NAB, and really looking forward to a conversation today. And I, there's rumors that, that there might have just been a, 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 a press release announced a minutes, minutes ago, right? <laughs> yeah, quite correct. In fact, uh, there's uh, quite a few of them to look for this morning, both from Zoom and uh, from a number of developers, uh, which I look forward to sharing a little bit about what is in that. I'll save you the trouble of reading it all right now, and I'll just give it to you. And then you can check out more information at news.zoom.us. And so, Yes. All I was going to say is that as Andy's talking about this, this is a very unique opportunity for us. This is, the, the release has just come out in the last couple minutes. Um, so Andy's going to over, give us an overview, but definitely take advantage of this. Get those questions in early. Uh, vote on those questions on the ones that you're most interested in. And I'm going to now hand it off to Andy to give us an overview of what uh, what's available. Great. So there's 10 pieces of information that I like to share with Zoom producers uh, who are looking for information at NAB. So what are the things that I want you know Zoom pr- producers to be looking for and to know about uh, regarding NAB? Number one, Zoom ISO 2.1 is going to be entering into beta in the next month, and we're going to be adding support for SRT, joining Zoom events, and expanding our audio workflows for increased compatibility with devices like the, the Bird Dog Play, which Guy was just talking about, and things like that. So we'll have in- increased audio capabilities, support for SRT as an output type, and then we'll have a join flow that allow us to sign into Zoom events, and that'll go into beta next month. Number two, the Zoom integration for the BitFocus companion platform will be exiting beta along with the rest of Companion V3 uh, in the next couple of days. So we've put a lot of work over the past year, actually over the past three years, into developing this companion integration, but particularly working with the companion core team in the past 12 months and Jeffrey Davids and that amazing community. We've studied all the feedback from users. We've directly engaged with members of this community and others to really build a companion workflow that we're really proud of for Zoom. And that'll now be graduating from beta in the next couple of days, along with the rest of Companion V3. So definitely go check that out. 
Number three, uh, Epifan Connect is announcing its connection to Zoom. Uh, so you'll be able to use the Connect platform to create a mesh of uh, on-prem and cloud devices to build a workflow that includes compositing, uh, endpoint distribution, sending things back to Zoom, extracting content from Zoom. Uh, it's a super powerful integration. I'm looking forward to sitting down with the Epifan team at NAB uh, and getting into more detail about it, but that's something to keep an eye out for. Uh, next, uh, Wirecast will be adding support for Zoom as a native source. So you'll be able to take Wirecast, log it into a Zoom call, and pull the individual video feeds and audio feeds as sources inside of Wirecast for compositing inside of their software switcher. Uh, next, SPX Graphics has announced an app for Zoom. Uh, you might have just seen that come out into the Zoom app marketplace, and that allows you to do uh, compositing um, of lower thirds, uh, titles, animations, things like that directly inside of the Zoom client. Uh, so that's a Zoom app you can go get from the Zoom app marketplace and, and go check it out. I know Tom Mosman put a lot of work into that, and he's going to be continuing to iterate on it and activating new features in the coming weeks and months, so definitely something to, uh, to go check out. Next, New Blue Titler Live is adding a Zoom integration as well. So you'll be able to take uh, New Blue and uh, Titler Live, sign it into Zoom, and then you'll be able to extract the video, audio, as well as data. So you can create uh, these amazing uh, workflows where you can take data from Zoom and then bring it into their engine. And once it's in the engine, you can have it go to things like After Effects and generate a live sequence, and then pass that back into Zoom as a layer or exchange it with any of the other amazing things that that software can do, both from a data, audio, and video perspective. So you have basically an all-in-one solution for producing with all of our professional production tools uh, inside of uh, New Blue Title Live. Uh, next, Memo Live, and you've probably heard about this one. Memo Live is adding support uh, to sign into a Zoom call as well. And then you're going to have a new layer, a Zoom layer, that will have the audio and video of that person. So you can work inside of their layers-based workflow and put together a show using Memo Live and its Zoom integration. Now, we've talked a little bit before about this, but uh, EasyCast is now entering into beta. So if you want to check that out, it's a way of transporting audio, video, and data from Isadora copies around the world. So it's basically now a global media server where different edge nodes can be communicating this data to each other and allow for some really incredible creative performance work. Uh, but also, we can definitely see some broadcast use cases, including things like remote PTZ control, a different type of contribution things. Basically, if you ever wanted to change the way that Zoom worked in a workflow, but still rely on our core audio and video technology, EasyCast is going to be a great way to do that. So definitely go check out the beta. And then Cinemaker, uh, who you might know from Director Studio, is adding Studio HD Recorder for Zoom. So this is going to be an app that allows you to log into a Zoom call, pull the individual contributors, and record them uh, as ISOs that you can then import into Director Studio for editing, or you can export it to other um, you know, NLEs as well for, for other types of workflows. Um, so super excited for all that. My last one is to say it's an open invitation. As you can see, we just had uh, a cohort of developers building against this technology. And the underlying news from all of this is that we've taken the technology that we built to create Zoom ISO, and we've opened it to developers. So the Zoom developer platform now has the capabilities that we use to build Zoom ISO. So all the developers I just mentioned before are leveraging different pieces of that ecosystem, the different things that we put in, for APIs, SDKs, Zoom apps, framework, all of that stuff, and leveraging that into their workflow. So if you're a developer, or you have a tool that you make for virtual production, online, hybrid, all of that stuff, uh, Zoom now has the capabilities ready for you to go use, and you can download those SDKs and get started. Um, so we were really excited to work with uh, these different companies and to see what they developed. And uh, you know, 
it's completing the circle. Like I said, it's a year of integrations. Uh, the technology that we built for Zoom ISO, the purpose of it was yes, to make a great app, but really to make a great ecosystem for developers to be able to build their own tools, integrate it into the tools you're already using and empower new workflows. So that's a mouthful, but those are the 10 things that I wanted to share. And I look forward to answering your questions. It's super exciting. And, and, and I think that one of the things that is really important is a lot of times people are talking about how events work and whether, you know, this is what people are going back to physical events. And I keep on saying, well, you know, we're, you were looking at a Model T, you know, or maybe, maybe, you know, a Model T of what is what, what's capable, what we're capable of when it comes to virtual events, when it comes to digital events and online events. You were looking at something that was very rough a year ago or two years ago, you know, and so the things we made decisions about, about how you run an event, were really based on the most rough version, you know, that we, uh, we often say internally, the, the, the first is the worst. And the first time we pulled it out, it's, it was just like, you know, it was still revolutionary. There's a lot of people that wouldn't, we wouldn't exist without Zoom, you know, just getting into the vanilla version of it. And there's many people using that. But no, seeing what, and I will say that I've said this before, that the, I became very bullish about Zoom because of the liminal purchase, because that it was, you know, I saw that there were people there that were going to be real stakeholders and, and um, you know, really pushing this forward. And I think that we're seeing the, the benefits of that now, not just Zoom saying, okay, we're going to build a bunch of tools that you can buy from us, but really making it available to all these developers and making it open. And I think that now the possibilities of everything from Isadora to what Mimo Live does to what Epifan does and all the other ones in between, there's just that we're going to see a, a huge explosion. And I think that we as a group will have to pay more attention. You know, there'll probably be something that we're talking about almost, you know, every, every month we'll have a second hour somewhere that is talking about these different tools and how they work because we have to keep up with it now. <laughs> like it's not like we were trying to drag Zoom forward for a long time. And then we were kind of side by side with Zoom when, when with Zoom ISO. And now it's going to be us trying to make sure that we understand all the things that we can do. Uh, so the, 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 um, the tables have turned on us as, as users uh, as uh, here. So I'm, I'm super excited uh, about, about this. And I know that there's still more that was announced that is still probably in the, you know, coming out. And I think that that's going to be really exciting. Go ahead, John. Jacket. What's up with the jacket, Andy? <laughs> Nobody wears jackets in technology. <laughs> well, I see, so, I, I, I'm counterbalancing it with the jeans, which you can't see. But <laughs> so, <laughs> so a couple of a, a question about strategy now, because I'm seeing the integration of, of NDI and Teams and now WebEx. Is there a reason to have ISO split as a separate application or will that code base move into Zoom? And especially now with all this integration with all the third part party apps. Tell me about Zoom ISO as a, as a separate platform. So we've used Zoom ISO to be sort of the bleeding edge of our technical capabilities in the pro AV market segment. That's where we prove workflows. That's where we demonstrate value and develop capabilities and do it quickly, right? Because it's a, it's a client app. It's, it's built on the Mac OS platform. So we have specific controls. We have a, a narrower set of requirements, let's say, when we build ISO, which allows us to rapidly prototype and deploy new features. What I think you've been seeing over the past year, year and a half, has been the migration of features from Zoom ISO into our Zoom Rooms product, which is a core client. 
Um, and so you've seen things like uh, the increase from 3 to 12 NDI outputs. You've seen the migration to NDI 5. You've seen the output standardization layer, where we now have a media engine that's running inside of Zoom Rooms that is essentially identical to Zoom ISO's media engine in the sense that it takes the incoming video feed and will scale it, repeat or drop frames as needed to make sure that the output is always the target resolution and frame rate. So I think that's a pattern that you can expect to continue. And, and that's something that we feel strongly about across the entire platform. There are things coming that I look forward to sharing as well that, that demonstrate intersectional value between the liminal apps and the rest of the platform in the core clients, uh, both the desktop meeting client and the Zoom Rooms client. And I'm looking forward to sharing more about that at a future date. But for now, I think we are aligned on strategy. We are using the liminal apps to prove the capabilities. And then we're using that work to propagate across the platform, both for our own products and, as you saw today, for the developer market at large. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. So we're right on the cusp of going to NAB as office hours to do some coverage there. So I'm really fascinated about the integration with Cinemaker and things like that. We've talked a lot about we're going to probably have a bigger footprint than a, than a mobile app feed into live Zoom. But that sounds like there's going to be possibilities in that area that are going to continue to evolve. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Absolutely. You know, uh, Cinemaker has been a longtime integrator of the Zoom SDKs, and it's exciting to see them continue to innovate you know, beyond even what Director Studio does, which by itself is really amazing and has been a leader, I think, in uh, a lot of these uh, capabilities. Um, I'm actually going to have a whole panel conversation with Cinemaker at NAB. Uh, so I look forward to sitting down and getting into more detail about them specifically and what they're doing. Um, but I agree with you that, you know, what we're seeing here is the opportunity to expand that footprint, right? And and demonstrate different workflows because we all we all do have different workflows, right? We have the live, post-production, even pre-production, right? There's all th sorts of different pieces. And what I love so much about what we're announcing today is that each developer of these different tools has taken Zoom and said, what can I add as a platform that extends it in a different way. So, you know, New Blue with all the title and graphic controls, and then Wirecast, an established video mixing name, adding it as a native source, and EasyCast doing something really creative with the video SDK and more of an arts form factor or more creative, you know, drag and drop flow. So they've each taken their own spin on it, taking their industry experience and our core technology and building something new. And I think it makes a really exciting platform for you as producers to be able to say, yeah, that's exactly what I need here, and this is what I need here. And the vendors are all essentially working together to build an ecosystem for professional production. Yeah, and, and what Zoom is abstracted from, from, from my perspective, abstracted is all the transports and process and interactions and all these things that are really hard to do. <laughs> like the reason that these, these other folks are, are, are adding the Zoom you know, uh, SDK is specifically because they had been trying to do it themselves and it wasn't working very well. You know, and and so and and if if they're all of those companies are doing their own development and it's not working very well, uh, you know, being able to to rely on something that is kind of bedrock, you know, that that this is going to work is is going to cause a huge explosion in what we can do as, in online events because now they're not worried about that piece. Like that piece is done. Like, you know, okay, okay so we Video transport is done. Now we can figure out how we make it look great, how we make it, we can we can work with the creative parts of making that that possible. Can you explain a little more about the SRT uh, integration? Absolutely. So um, SRT is uh, essentially the protocol of the cloud, if you will. It's a, it's a way of getting uh, video and audio or really any, technically it can be any arbitrary data. And as you may remember, Liminal was an early SRT experimenter in the Streamweaver product, where with Streamweaver, we had 
the ability to wrap UDP data stream into SRT, and we were using it for remote show control. But uh, one of the things that you can do with SRT, and in fact, probably the more popular use case of it, is to be able to encode a uh, like an H.264 video stream into an MPEG TS transport layer and then send it over WAN. So that's exactly what we're doing. But there's something special about our implementation of SRT that I'm really excited about. We are leveraging the H.264 encoders inside of Apple Silicon. And so inside of ZoomISO, we're actually building an entire encoding pipeline. And SRT is the first thing that's utilizing that. But I'm sure you can imagine now that we have the ability to on-the-fly encode H.264, all the different things that we could do with that. So we're really excited about SRT because it's going to allow us to be compatible with more cloud workflows that have endpoints exposed for you know, routing video through the cloud ecosystem, or if maybe you're running vMix in the cloud and you want to beam up all your Zoom video feeds to it. This is going to be a great way to do that. We support stream IDs, right? So you can break it all out. You can send it to SRT mini server and get your NDI network running up there. That's all been tested and it's things that we're really excited about. But the fact that you know the bigger picture is that we now have the ability to create these H.264 encodes of the Zoom video feeds in a really efficient way, and we have the ability to wrap them in different types of transport streams. And again, SRT is going to be that first step, um, and we look forward to sharing that in the ISO 2.1 beta in the next month. Really amazing. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. First question. First question comes to us from John Nichols in Concord, California. John says, I want to record 16 people with Zoom ISO. I have two M1s and two Decklink Duo 2s per M1. Each set has an ATEM SDI Extreme ISO connected. I use Companion to manage. Any suggestions to sync activity across instances? Alternative ideas using the same config, maybe? Well, if the eastbound train leaves at 35 miles an hour at 4 o'clock and the westbound train leaves going out, no, but in all seriousness, um, yeah. So what I would do in this situation is i take uh, a Mac Mini for each, which you have two of them. So you're going to run Zoom ISO on both machines, and you're going to run um, your, your deck link in, one into each, right? I wouldn't run both deck links into one computer because the, the Mac Mini M1 only has one Thunderbolt controller. So my general rule of thumb is one Thunderbolt controller, not port, controller, one external PCI Express enclosure, one PCI Express card. So if you break it out that way, your flow looks like a Mac Mini with an enclosure, with a deck link, and then Zoom ISO sending eight video feeds out of that. Now, your question about sync, um, so long as you are taking the audio and video from the same computer and sending it out, you'll be able to sync it. What you can't do in the rule of thumb in Zoom production is you can never try to match audio from one computer to video from another computer, because you can't be guaranteed that both computers will receive the video and audio feeds from Zoom at the same time. But Zoom ISO is receiving all the audio and video at one point, and now they're just exporting it to the different platforms. So you could embed it in the SDI, you could send it out via Dante, but just so long as the video feed and the audio feed of a participant come from the same Zoom ISO instance, you'll be able to keep it from slipping in sync. You might have a static delay depending on what your chain looks like, right? Anytime that you separate audio and video, you may need to sync it back up. But um, just as long as it's coming from the same computer, it's not going to drift over time, right? You'll be able to actually dial in whatever your chain's latency is, and then you can rely on that. Next question. Andy Kokendorf for VR Florida is up next. Zoom is set to release a, quote, native streaming app on April 16th. Any idea on how this might work? Well, we announced at Zoomtopia a streaming app. I wouldn't necessarily call it a native app, but maybe a first-party implementation, let's say. Um, and what this allows us to do is to stream to three platforms at once. So you can OAuth into like YouTube, Facebook, and Twitch, and then you can use Zoom's built-in streaming solution to be able to send that feed out to those different destinations all at once. You'll also be able, because we're OAuthing into that platform, see things like the chat and uh, have some interaction directly from within the Zoom client 
to those far-end platforms. Uh, this will be a great way for us to quickly iterate on uh, improving our connections out to different CDNs and streaming platforms. So something that we're really looking forward to. Um, I can tell you that as the engineering manager for this project, um, I don't know where that April 16th date is coming from. We haven't shared a release date for it yet, but uh, we will be you know, introducing this in the near future. It's something we did announce in Zimtopia. Uh, so keep an eye out for it, but no uh, specific expectation on a release date yet. Next question. Craig McFarland in Boston, Massachusetts. Are there any shortcuts for daily switching between three Zoom accounts? One is a platform account, but two are email-based accounts. So um, there are a couple of different tools that I've seen used for managing multiple Zoom accounts in terms of what you sign into the client with. Um, so I would, but I would refer, I think this one, I would refer back to just the sort of the general Zoom knowledge base or to reach out to support on that because different enterprise workflows have different requirements like are you SSO or are you email type or, you know, exactly how you're managing your login flow. Um, but there are, you know, some tools that I'm aware of that can help you manage being signed into different accounts. Next question. Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh. Is the Cinemaker announcement the only available double-ended recording functionality currently available for Zoom? So Cinemaker's recorder is not a double-ender yet. Um, it's uh, it's streaming the video feeds through Zoom and recording it at least the way that that I understand and read it. Um, but uh, we did talk about uh, you know our, our upcoming double-end recording or studio recording. I don't have any information to share at this point about that feature, um, but I certainly look forward to coming back um, and continuing to share as we continue our developments. Yeah, and for those listening, what double-ending means um, is that you're recording not just on the far end. So right now when we record a Zoom session, we're recording what's going through the internet to us. And then we record it. The advantage of double-ending, uh, which we've used in radio for many, many years, decades, is that um, both sides record their own piece and then they share them and put them back together. And so what's already been announced is that at some point Zoom will do that <laughs> or, or there'll be features inside of Zoom and probably other folks that that make that possible. But um, but the point is, is that, that just so people understand what we're talking about with double ending, that's recording at the host site, which means that if they have bad Wi-Fi, if they have, um, you know, all kinds of other things, it may, it may not sound as good uh, during the live session, but there'll be a higher quality version. It also means that instead of having, you have to compress all this down to get it into the pipe to get it over to us. If you're recording on the host, you could theoretically record it at a much higher quality and then send it out uh, a little bit later. And we do that oftentimes with both video and audio. Uh, next question. Simon Nordvik, or Samuel Nordvik, excuse me, in Norway. Andy, how would you go about uh, to pull the mute status on and off from Zoom? I'm thinking about making a mic status light. Gotcha. So there's a couple different things that you can do. If you're asking about your own mute status, um, there is a way to be able to read that either through the accessibility layer in macOS, for example, or to actually read it from the client. Um, and there's opportunities if you're developing a new product uh, where you can come to Zoom and we can talk about how to get access to like a programmatic state of that light. Um, so that's how, for example, if you have like a Corsair Virtuoso headset, the little LED indicator on the tip of it, and you mute and zoom, the light turns red, you unmute and zoom, the light turns green. Um, that functionality does exist, and certain vendors are extending that through our Zoom client. Uh, if you were trying to build something that was not necessarily a product, but just something you wanted for workflow, or you wanted the light to indicate the status of a far-end participant, like is somebody else's mic muted or not, and you wanted to have an indicator on your side for that, you could use Zoom OSC for that. Zoom OSC will give you a discrete command anytime it detects a mute status change, and then you can take that information and you can use that to build whatever other behavior you wish. For example, in our companion profile, uh, that's what controls the feedback indicators on the different buttons. You can see, you know, oh, they're red if, you know, the, you know, their mic's in one state and it's green if it's in another state. All that information is being driven from Zoom OSC 
which also lives inside of Zoomiso. So either product will be able to give you that information as a discrete output type. And can you tell us a, a little bit about the interrelationship between what's in ISO versus OSC? Sure. So we have sort of four tiers of the liminal apps, if you will. We start with Zoom OSC Essentials, which is a free entry point. And a matter of fact, that mute information I just said is actually available in the free version of Zoom OSC. So you can go download that today and you can get a ton of functionality for it. It's the original app that I built back in March of 2020 to try to get theaters through the pandemic. Uh, and that in, that capability and an expanded set that we've added over the past three years is still available in the free version of Zoom OSC. And then we step up to Zoom OSC Pro. And that's really for people who are trying to do things like tie it out to a stream deck or make customized automations for Zoom. It has this input-output workflow that allows you to get a state information about what's going on in the meeting and break that out and that memory out into third-party controllers. Then we step up to Zoom ISO. And Zoom ISO has light and pro tiers. The light tier has all the Zoom OSC essentials information plus four output from the Zoom ISO output engine. Um, so you have the ability to tie it out to a stream deck because we also unlock the list output command. So if you want to use it with BitFocus Companion, all you have to do is get the Zoom ISO light tier and then it will sync up with Companion. But the other pro Zoom OSC commands become available when you step up to Zoom ISO Pro. Zoom ISO Pro has all of the Zoom OSC Pro commands and all of the Zoom ISO functionality as well. So it's kind of like a ladder as you step up the chain, you get different pieces of functionality and it's all available on the comparison chart at liminalet.com. And and just to back it up, for if you if you get Zoom ISO Pro, you have everything, right? Like yeah, you it's have, all inside. Yeah. It's all, it's it's one all app. packed. You don't have to separately run Zoom OSC. You can run Zoom ISO and Zoom OSC sort of lives within that app. The APIs become unlocked within the Zoom ISO binary. And and how did you um, approach the companion integration? Like, how did the, you know what? Can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, because it's it, it's it was a little haphazard. It's a lot more solid now. And what what did it take to get there? Yeah, so there's definitely been an evolution over the past couple of years as we've been doing this. When I first made Zoom OSC, the immediate thing I wanted to do was, all right, let me break that out to a stream deck so I can press buttons and spotlight different people in Zoom. So the first thing that I did right was create the Zoom OSC API, and then I used the generic OSC component of Companion to send the different commands from our API document. So three years ago, what you would do is you would go read our API and you'd program each key with the different commands and the OSC buttons and you'd press it. One-way communication. Then we had our second version of this, which we introduced in 2021, which was bidirectional. So you could see the names of participants on the keys and you could output to them, but it was still one-to-one -one with our API in the sense that it was every command broken out in sort of a, a linear fashion. And while we had a lot of functionality there, there wasn't really the emergence of a workflow. But what we did use was the opportunity to see what workflows people were doing with those capabilities, study that. And over the past year, what we've done is we've built this companion version three module. So not only have we built our module, but we've worked with the companion core team to try to improve companion as a whole. And now we have a really, really robust system that out of the box has a drag and drop workflow. You don't have to know anything about our APIs, anything about programming. And you can dynamically see the names of participants on the keys with color states for different feedback. If you want to get into it and build something really customized, you can go in and you can still get access to all the variables and all the data and program your own buttons and do whatever you want. But for most workflows, it's going to literally just be go to Companion, open the preset and drag some gallery position buttons or some participant selection buttons. You can select people, put them in groups, apply actions to groups or individuals, multi-select, single-select. It's all out of the box. Um, so we're really 
really, really excited about what we did for the presets in Companion V3. I think that's the thing that really sets it apart. And it's been fun to work with the Companion team uh, to figure out, you know, okay, how do we coordinate everybody together? Um, as a vendor, we've been really heavily involved with the project, which I think a lot of times you see Companion is a power user who's enthusiastic about some product, adding some functionality for that product. We took the approach of, we really want to design this experience for our customers because we know it's a really popular integration. So we have stepped in and Jonathan and I directly designed this module from the ground up, engaged formally with the companion team to get that stuff done. And now we've given it back to the users and said, this is for you. Enjoy, go download it, check it out, let us know how it goes. But it's now we're turning it over from Zoom to the community. It's now going to be a community-driven project moving forward. But we got it to this stage because we really wanted to set our example for what we thought could be done with a companion integration to Zoom. The, I think that this really underlines, a lot of times, you know, people think that products come out of huge groups of people and there's a giant uh, thought process and there's a bunch of meetings, but a lot of times it comes down to a handful of individuals with almost any production that you actually see. And I think that what we're seeing here are production people <laughs> making solutions, which is why we get so excited on our end, because you can what you can see is experience of actually doing it. This isn't a software team talking to a, the, the, the hard part is, is that there's oftentimes a software team that's talking to developers or talking to production people and trying to understand what they need, as opposed to being a production team that understands what those things are and has a much higher level understanding. And of course, listening to people, but understanding what it actually looks like on the ground. And I think that that's what we're seeing here. Um, I don't think a lot of people want you to hand it back to the community. I think a lot of people want you to just keep, <laughs> keep running with it. Uh, but 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 hopefully the community will, will, will be able to keep up the pace. Uh, next next question. JJ McKenna in Santa Venetia, California. Considering the new continued functionality for Zoom rooms with a fourth camera, is there a way to use more than one NDI source on a Mac Zoom room as a camera source? Okay, so yeah, this is in reference to a feature that we added in our uh, winter, like I think it was December or January Zoom Room update, where we increased the multi-camera quantity from two to three on the Zoom Room side, or sorry, from three to four on the Zoom Room side. So now you can have uh, four, like for example, USB cameras coming into a Zoom Room and they'll show up as four participants inside of your gallery, for example. Um, so the question then relates to, okay, how can I take multiple NDI feeds and connect them in? So right now, if you have like an NDI virtual input, that's going to be one of them. It'll show up as a camera. Now you could have other types of virtual cameras that decode NDI feeds and then tie those into your multi-camera mode. Um, uh, that's all I can say for now, but it is a use case that we're keenly aware of. And and it's still uh, one, one source of audio, is that correct? That's right. They all share uh, one audio source. It'll show up as the audio feed of the primary zoom room camera so you'll see you know zoom room and then that will have the audio then you'll see the other devices joined as if they didn't join computer sound they won't have the little mic icon next to them and that's how you know which one is going to be the one that it falls to yeah and one of the things that people are probably thinking while watching why would you need that <laughs> and so the, the thing that we're looking at if you look at like the cooking experiments that we've done or examples of one of the big problems that we have is you talk to someone and they go well i have uh, you know, I I, I want to show a product, but it's at home and I, you know, they can't figure out how to do all those things. And what we're looking at doing is taking multiple cameras and maybe a bunch of little links, you know, these Insta360 links or possibly the OBS because we have um, um, OSC con control and being able to tie all those in. So you send them out a Mac mini with four cameras, plug all those cameras in and be able to actually send those feeds. They don't, we don't have to figure out how to cut on their end. We don't have to figure those things out. We have their audio going in. It, we get all the feeds on our end 
and were able to cut an entire show uh, with someone. And this could be a, a business presentation for an all hands. This could be a product demo. This could be, and, and so when you think about it as a production person, think about the idea of being able to send out a small kit. One of the, maybe one of the cameras has a little teleprompter. You've got two or three other cameras and you're sending it out to a company that wants to demo a product and they don't have to know anything about it. Set it up, plug the things in, put them where we tell you to put them, and then we take over. You know, and I think that that's also where where the, even though I'm really excited about the Insta360, where we're looking very seriously at the OBSBOT um, because of the OSC commands gives us another layer of that control uh, over top of that. Go ahead, Andy. And if I may, I would say that this is also a really interesting use case of IzzyCast, where you could say, yeah. all right, today I can go and I can completely customize what my transport chain looks like and use Isadora's capability to talk to these devices and control them as the way of tunneling in that remote control. So I could see a world where you load Isadora with IzzyCast onto a Mac Mini and send it out with some cameras, and yeah. that's how you manage that kind of workflow. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, with each one of these these uh, app, whether it's Memo Live or, or IzzyCast or IzzyCast or all of these other ones, each one of them has their own feature set that is going to make it easier for you to do production. And it's not going to, I know that the next couple of questions next week are going to be, which one should I use or which one's better than the other one? They're all going to be, it's going to be a very big, it depends. Like, what is your workflow? How does it look? And you've got this kind of menu, this buffet of, of options to, to tie in your solution. And I think it, it's, it's an exciting year. Like this is going to be a really interesting year. Go ahead. Andy. Absolutely. Yeah. And I just want to underscore that point that you made. Each partner has, or each developer has chosen to do something that was um, unique in the way that they deployed the Zoom integration and they, they played to their strengths. And so what you're looking for is really the first question and then how you solve that problem. You're going to have a wide variety of production tools available to you uh, to be able to do that. Next question. Oliver Breidenbach is here from Salzburg, Austria. Andy, great stuff. We're super happy to support the Zoom SDK and offer uh, some unique features in MIMO Live. Yeah, so congratulations, Oliver. Really, really great job. And we're so happy uh, that, you've, uh, that you've developed this integration. And uh, I'm sure customers are going to be excited to check it out, too. And we're going to have Oliver. We'll definitely catch up with him at NEB. We're going to have Oliver come back on and, and show how that works in the next couple of weeks. So stay tuned for that. We're really excited to. We, we you know, obviously, I use Memo Live. <laughs> There's a bunch of people that use it here. So, so, um, so I think that it's going to be a really exciting uh, process to to kind of move forward. So stay tuned for more from Memo Live uh, as we go into May. Now, next question. Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Ontario, Canada. It seems you've transitioned from a conferencing tool into a conferencing platform. I'm very impressed. Is this going to affect your ability to provide tech support? So I think you've correctly identified that Zoom is a platform company. Um, you know, we're no longer just a killer app for having a meeting, right? We are now a platform company that has a wide variety of solutions. I mean, you can go look at the Zoom product wheel image that we send out there. and We've got contact center and phone and rooms and all that other stuff. It's so much more than just meetings. And I think that, you know, throughout that entire process, Zoom has maintained a really stellar support system. I think we've got a great capability for being able to, you know, get answers to questions, get assistance, get help. Um, and, you know, I think Zoom support is a really, really fundamental part of the platform and it's continued to scale with the platform and do amazing things. So I think you're in, you're in great hands with the Zoom support team. Yeah. And I think that we, I, I you know, I, when I look at it, even as a conferencing platform, I would just say as a video, video, inter, you know, video distribution platform, not even a conferencing platform, but there's so many things when we think about a conference, we think about a certain mode of how we do these things, but it's really a broadcast platform, you know, and, and really you can mix and match this in any different you know way. And I, and again, I think that I feel, especially with these announcements and with stuff that's already been announced at Zoomtopia that's coming this year, 
I, you know, I, I feel like we, we've picked well <laughs> what we've done. I don't think we could do what we do both in office hours, but also what, what I do outside of office hours without, you know, Zoom. I think that the other, the other products aren't going to catch up anytime soon. Um, next question. Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Has Wirecast implemented a different strategy using the Zoom SDK than Mimo Live? What I'd say is that each developer, like I said, has taken a different approach in the way that they position this within their product. I think that Mimo Live has this really interesting layers-based approach to video production, which is unique. And Wirecast has this very established history in you know, uh, video production, vision mixing, and things like that. And I think they've each played to their strengths in the way that they allow you to bring in remote guests via Zoom. And so I really think the question is not going to be about the Zoom integration. It's going to be about what your workflow is and how do you want to work. And then you'll select the best tool for that job. What makes me excited is the fact that you have a variety of choices, right? You have the ability to say, this is the way I want to work. And there's likely now a tool that fits into that workflow that has a native Zoom integration. And that's what makes me really excited. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of people have been using Wirecast for a decade and they don't they what they don't want to do is feel like they can't do what they need, they want to do inside of, you know, they have to move over to something else. And so I think that it's and it will be interesting. I do think that what we're going to see is is the what's great for us as users is that there's a little bit of an arms race here so that everyone, you know, number one is I think that supporting, you know, getting Zoom into your online tool is going to be table stakes as we move forward because it's going to be really hard to compete with what Zoom's doing in those in those areas. But I also think that um, we're going to see a lot of innovation between those apps. So we're going to see the uh, the apps all changing what they're doing because they're seeing what the other ones are doing and they go, oh, I can add that or I, I can do this. So for us as users, building conferences, building events, building all the broadcasts that we do, it's going to be a, a good time watching everybody compete with each other. <laughs> Next question. Next one comes from James Brooks in New York. What are the options for upgrading from the old Zoom ISO account? Right. So if you had a Zoom ISO V1 license, you can convert that into a V2 Lite license using a converter tool that's available at liminalet.com forward slash Zoom ISO. At the bottom of the page, there's a little form. You can put in your old product key and you can get a new product key back. That new product key will be valid until October 1st of this year. Um, so you can get multiple free months of Zoom ISO V2 Lite uh, for your Zoom ISO V1 purchase. Next question. Scott Gorman in Sydney, Australia. If I choose the Blackmagic option in the Zoom ISO output engine, can I output to a Decklink Duo on my PC? Or do I have to buy a Sonnet box and connect via Thunderbolt 4 to my M1 Mac? Will there be greater compatibility in these areas in the future? So Zoom ISO is going to pair with a locally attached Decklink card. So for example, in this case, you would take your Decklink and you would put it into an enclosure and connect it to the Mac Mini. Now, once those video feeds are on SDI, though, you can send that anywhere you'd like. You can send that to vMix running a deck link on a PC, and then you could you know, send it over the cable into that deck link. So you could have the Mac talking to the PC, which I think is a really powerful workflow. So I think uh, Zoom ISO is a Mac application, and that's because we have this incredibly leading performance on Apple Silicon. You can go to liminalet.com forward slash Zoom ISO dash performance, and you can see the charts where you can see that we're doing 16 outputs and not breaking a sweat on these different Apple Silicon chips. And that's because we've optimized it for that purpose. So we think we're delivering a lot of value by making that decision to do that. But like I said, we're continuing to migrate features and workflows across the platform and now even across the industry through other developers as well. So like I said, the ingredients that were used to make Zoom ISO are available to developers to be able to build customized workflows 
So for example, if you are using a PC, maybe this is an opportunity to download New Blue or Wirecast or something along those lines and have remote callers directly in to that app. Now, that could be another way of doing it. Yeah. And the, the real power of what we're talking about here is, is kind of this open-ended process that anybody can design how they want to want to work. So we were trying to get Google to do this 10 years ago. <laughs> we're like, hey, we want, I want to be able to have all the outputs from my, from my Hangout to go out of, out of a computer. And then, you know, we got Skype TX boxes. At one point, I owned six of them, six four-channel Skype TX boxes <laughs> that we would, you know, pull all these meetings out of and put, you know, put, um, put these things together. But the problem was is that, well, the Dante didn't quite work, <laughs> and then this part didn't work, and then you had to deal with tech support, and you couldn't you, you, you a uh, you couldn't control your own destiny. And so I think that what's what's really powerful right now is that while I think in the future we'll probably see things that are you know keep on growing down this path, with what we have, we can cobble together something that solves our specific problem. You know, like I have, you know we're moving office hours to eight channels per Mac mini you know, to increase the density so we can use other Mac minis for other things. But the one that I'm using for the Michael Krasny show is a Mac mini with just four, you know, a little duo because I took the duo, <laughs> took the quad, but took a duo out, put a quad in. And uh, and now I've got up to four people, which is all I need for that show that are just going into my SDI uh, extreme. And it, it's, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty impressive. And so I think that being able to piece these together currently is really a great way, solution, even if other bigger things happen in the future. Next question. Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Up next, can you comment on the new blue titler live Zoom integrations? What data can be extracted from Zoom apart from video and audio? So th there's a couple of things such as like your username. So if you wanted to create a lower third automatically based on the name of a participant in a Zoom call and even pipe that out to not only their graphics engine, but the graphics engines that they integrate with like After Effects, you could directly have a link between Zoom's data source for that participant's name and the rest of the data that runs inside of their engine. The other thing that you can use it for is like chat and Q&A. That's a great way to be able to automatically create graphics out of the question text or graphics you know, for a ticker tape across the bottom of the different chat messages coming in. Uh, it's a really powerful integration. They have a, an amazing graphics engine. Uh, so the data sources that are available in Zoom beyond audio and video, the different experiences that you have inside of the client, that being made available through our meeting SDK then makes it available to them to be able to pull out and integrate with as well. Um, they also have access to all of the Zoom APIs. So uh, anything that they scoped for their OAuth token, they can also go speak to. Like, for example, we have polling APIs. So they could, you know, presumably go look at something like that as well. You'll have to work with each vendor to get a sense of what exactly the scope of their capabilities will be. I don't want to speak for them today, um, but I want to give you the sense of what, you know, is in the realm of possibility and what they are saying in, in their announcements about the focus of these integrations. Next question. Guy Cochran, Seattle, Washington. Can Will you be able to ISO record participants in MIMO Live or Wirecast? Well, I know MIMO Live has a uh, multi-track recorder into it. Um, I'm less familiar with how it works in Wirecast. Um, they may have that capability as well. Next question. Gordon Lake, Los Angeles, California. Explain what type of Zoom licenses you'd need to take full, exa uh, full advantage of Zoom ISO. So technically speaking, Zoom ISO is... Uh, it licensed independently from your Zoom license. However, there are some things that you might want in order to be able to take full advantage of it, as you said. Uh, for example, if you have a Zoom Pro account, you can ask support for 720p or a business account, you can ask for 1080p, and that will allow Zoom ISO to pull that full you know, HD resolution out of the meeting. So now if you you know, um, partner with organizations that already have Zoom licenses that are, you know, 
1080p enabled, then you can just take your Zoom ISO and log it into that meeting. And of course, the host of the meeting is the one who determines the resolution. So there isn't necessarily like a direct correlation, if you will, uh, but there are some things to think about. If you're doing everything in-house, then yeah, Zoom Pro or, or Zoom Business would be the way to get to the, the HD resolutions uh, that would be helpful to dovetail with Zoom ISO. Yeah, and one of the things there is that, it, remember that that's a value add as a producer that you have. You're working with a lot of companies that want to put out the top quality uh, you know, event virtual, you know, or digital event, um, and you have a 1080p license and they have, they don't have a 1080p license. <laughs> and so, and, 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 it, it, and for even a large company, that can be a rigmarole for them to kind of go through the whole process and make it all work. Um, for smaller companies, it becomes really hard to get to that. So make, know that that's an advantage that you have if you, if you go through the trouble or the cost and the, and everything else that's required is that is really providing a key value add for your clients. And remember also as we move forward, and, and one of the things that's really exciting, I don't mean to you know, talk about this, but you know, we may have some tightness in our economy coming up. And remember that all the things that we do here are counter-cyclical. <laughs> so, so that means that as producers, if we start to see things tighten up, there's going to be a lot stronger demand to do these kinds of um, shows because people are going to want to cut back on... I've just talked to two clients yesterday, two partners yesterday that canceled their physical events <laughs> for the, you know, in, in the not too distant future because they just were like, we don't have the... We're tightening everything up right now. Everybody's tightening, you know, and this is an opportunity for a lot of us to, um, you know, to look at how do we provide value for our clients and how do we use these tools to do that? Uh, next question. Next one comes from Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. Where can I get one of these zippy Zoom pins on your lapel? <laughs> <laughs> so come visit us at a trade show. Yeah, we you know exhibit throughout the year, and we have different merch, T-shirts, and pins, and cups, and all that stuff. So yeah, <laughs> that's the that's the that's the uh, that's the Zoom version of a challenge coin. All right, all right. Uh, uh, <laughs> collect them all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, You're uh, one pin. You've been around a while. Yeah, exactly. Um, next question. Guy Cochran, Seattle. Can you speak more to the Epifan Connect announcement? Yeah, Epifan Connect is super interesting. It, it allows you to uh, log into a Zoom session and extract the individual video feeds. And then you can send them anywhere else that Epifan is capable of sending feeds to. So that could be to a Perl. That could be to their cloud-based switcher environment. That could just be a reroute inside of the cloud, right? They have this really, uh, this, this mesh, if you will, of both on-prem and cloud-based solutions uh, for mixing, producing, distributing, all that stuff. So this basically makes a bi-directional link from video and audio to Zoom. So that video and audio is being transcoded into SRT through Connect, and now it's available to all their SRT endpoints. They can also open up an endpoint and bring something in and then play it out into a Zoom session, for example. So uh, that could be a way of you know, bringing in remote content and also sub-distributing that out to the different sub-nodes that are running their own Zoom sessions as well. So it's a really, really interesting mesh. I'm looking forward to sitting down with Nick and the team and talking more about that integration this upcoming week at NAB. I'm sorry. I'm just thinking about all the possibilities there. Right, exactly. It's so cool. <laughs> like it's just, so how many, so if, if, if it connects, Epifan Connect, this is a physical device or is it a cloud device? It's a cloud, it's a service. So it's a, a, a cloud-based service that connects into the rest of the ecosystem. Yep. So in that, in that service, so you just say, I want to, this joins and it can grab everybody that has video in uh, how many how many connections can it pull when i think it, right now they're it? saying nine um but we okay, can, got it. you know i think we should double click with them when we sit down and talk at uh, nab so you can now and so then you could i just want to make sure i get my head completely around this so the connect service jumps in it can grab up to nine people it can then um send them via srt and then you could have a uh 
a, a Epifan device, an output device, sitting some sitting somewhere at a venue or at someone's house or at a broadcast, and it just spits it out, right? That's right. And so what's what's so cool about their mesh is that it's everything feels like an input and an output, right? You could have things that are on-prem pulling in things that are sending it up to the cloud. You could have things that originate in the cloud, like a Zoom call, and push it out to the edge nodes. You can have it you know, rerouting in between different locations, or they even have a compositor service that they can also run in the cloud. Um, so there's a whole range of really interesting things on their side. And this is basically bringing Zoom as another piece of that ecosystem. It's really interesting. Um, next question. Kyle Hammond in Chicago, Illinois. Speaking of innovation and trying new things, is there anything in the pipeline that Zoom is working on that might seem out of left field? Oh, Disclose everything. <laughs> <laughs> Who cares about NDAs? Right, exactly. So obviously, I can't get into detail on any of that. What I can say is that one of the things I love about working here is just how creative everybody is. I think there's you know a lot of really interesting things coming. I look forward to sharing more about them in the future. Um, but I think even today, I think the approach we've taken is very creative in and of itself. Right. I think this is sort of a full court, full court press on digital events uh, by Zoom and the way that we've worked with developers and this idea that you know we're going to have this sort of F1 app, if you will, that's our Zoom ISO stuff. And we're going to put all this innovation into that. And then we're going to you know, open that up to everybody through the platform and improve our core products as well. I think that is an innovative approach. And I'm excited to be you know, working here with people who are equally you know, enthusiastic and creative and coming up with uh, amazing solutions. I think we have you know, all sorts of different features, even things that we're shipping today that are you know, uh, maybe not necessarily out of left field. We hope they're useful to you, but are, um, I'd say, very creative in their approach. And that's something that we take a lot of pride in. Um, yeah, the, I guess the, we've talked a lot about the integration with other folks. Have have there been any, any updates to ISO itself? Yes, yeah, so we have the 2.1 update coming out. Um, and there's a whole host of things, like I said, the SRT, the ability to join Zoom events, the enhanced audio workflows. And throughout the year, you know, I look forward to coming back and sharing more about things that we're doing there. But over the past couple of months, we've added a ton of functionality to ISO. We've changed the way the screen sharing works to make it more flexible. We've um, we've uh, updated the NDI SDK um, to do some things there that are interesting. Uh, the advanced audio pipelines become a little more robust. Um, so there's there's all sorts of different things. We've added modes for being able to select different individuals based on their position in the gallery view and output them that way. Um, so you don't even have to identify the output that you want to use. We've opened up the OSC API even more. We've built the companion integration for it. Um, there's a whole lot of stuff that we've done over the past couple of months here that I think has brought a lot of functionality to the product. Yeah, 100%. Next question. Uh, Mike Edwards in Brooklyn says, Morning, guys. Andy, now that we officially have video and audio ISO, what's the next production tool that you see or that you think is missing from the ecosystem right now? Well, I, I think that there are a lot of opportunities to continue to develop. I think that, you know, um, there's tons of spaces for innovation. And I think the the tools that will be successful are the ones that think about the entire production lifecycle from pre-production planning, in-event producing, and then post-event analytics and artifacts. And I think that, you know, that structure for producing events um, becomes intertwined with Zoom when you start looking at some of these developer tools and the way that we interact and the APIs and SDKs that allow you to build a full end-to-end -end production workflow completely within the platform, but using the tools that are optimized and specialized to do the best at each stage of that process. So I think you're going to see continued improvements to native capabilities. I think you're going to see improvements to what developers in the vertical are doing. I think you're going to see you know, what we're experimenting with and taking advantage of all that as well. So there's so much that you can do when you have the individual audio and video feeds, and that's a great foundation. But look at what we're doing with some of the data as well. Like I said, the chat and Q&A and the names and the way that that interacts with other platforms. I think that's a, a wide open area for innovation to be able to figure out what it means to be a data-driven event 
and how that scales to the scale that Zoom can support. Really, this this global audience interacting seamlessly. When I was at Silicon Valley Video with Alex, I talked about you know my goal of getting to the point where people are connecting with each other around the world at an empathetic level. So we're communicating through the way that we feel co-present, even if we are spatially disparate. And I think that the Zoom platform is a, is a really powerful way to achieve that. And production tools are the thing that make these experiences feel not artificial, but like we're looking through a mirror or a piece of glass to the other side. And I think what we can do that, we can speak to each other, like I said, at that empathetic level across languages, across regions, and uh, make really... Uh, great progress, you know, um, as a society. So um, that's kind of a, a big picture goal, but I think, you know, maybe it calls for that. So I think that there's a lot of amazing things that can come to the ecosystem in service of that outcome. Yeah. And, and I completely agree. And I, one of the things that I'm talking about, and Andy will be joining me on Sunday morning. If you're, if you're, if you're at NAB on Sunday morning, we'll be talking about digital first events. And, and one of the things that, that we're really excited about is the idea that I could have a, I can have an epicenter, let's say a place that someone, you know, that a bunch of people are at, let's say a thousand people, but there could be a hundred people in 10 other locations around the world. And they're all having the same experience. And then there could be a million people watching at home or on their phone. And they're all having this, everybody's having a unified experience. But with the data, I can do things like lighting at every location. I could do things as, you know, uh, interactions at every location and all of that can be integrated into the, into one singular experience. And those are the kind of things that, um, but being able to beyond just audio and video, being able to have all the data transports, make all of that possible. Um, next question. Dave Troutman is in from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada again. How much are you focused on other language translation options? Zoom has so many amazing capabilities for translation. It's really, I think, one of the uh, underappreciated features, shall we say, of what our platform is capable of. Um, so I definitely, you know, encourage you to read up on that and the amazing work that's been done there. There's a whole lot of innovation. It's moving so fast. Um, so there's definitely check that out. Next question. Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania again. Has Zoom announced plans to enable Zoom Room's isolated video capability for Zoom events? I'm a little unclear on exactly what piece is the piece that's missing, but I know that Zoom Rooms uh, have a flow for joining Zoom events, and then Zoom Rooms, of course, also has the NDI out capabilities. Maybe there's a limitation there. I'm, uh, you know, I'd love to get more clarity on that, but um, you know, we certainly are make, trying to make sure that our production tools are compatible with our events platform, right? And that's, like I said, that's why we're introducing Zoom ISO's ability to log into Zoom events and be able to do the things that it does inside of that context more easily. So uh, I think there's a lot of work there and you're seeing progress in that today. Uh, next question. Dave Troutman, Edmonton, Alberta again. Are you planning on implementing control keys for disabled operators? So I think we have a whole lot of accessibility features inside of Zoom as well. Um, but one of the things that's interesting from the vector at this that I come from is, you know, from the production angle, the fact that you have open sound control inside of Zoom means that you can tie it out to basically any interface that you want, anything that can speak to open sound control. Um, so this example I always speak about is we had somebody who didn't have um, the ability to use their hands while they were, you know, inside of Zoom. So they had these foot pedals and they were MIDI foot pedals that were sending signals and then being translated to OSC and then sending commands to Zoom OSC. So that was one way that they were able to have a very like tactile interaction with the Zoom client without being able to use their hands in that given moment. That's great. So my big question for you, Andy, you're going to NAB, uh, obviously to talk to partners and everything else, but what are you excited about? What are you going to be looking for when you go to NAB? 
I would be remiss if I didn't say you all. Uh, so I'm looking forward <laughs> to getting to see everybody. Yeah, you're right. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump on a plane basically right after this and head over to Vegas, and I'll be there uh, through Wednesday. And I'm looking forward to you know um, some speaking opportunities that we have with the different uh, developers that we're talking to. I'm excited to get to stand there with them and see how they present these integrations and see what the market reaction is. I think that's something that I'm always really interested in. Is you know what is the takeaway? Because we all have a sense of it going in. You know, this is going to be exciting. This is going to be interesting. But I'm always surprised what people pick up on, what, you know, the press runs with, what, you know, uh, developers uh, think about. So I'm looking for, you know, and we've said this before, but, you know, I look for those some of those smaller booths, what innovations are they doing and how can we keep ahead? I use this as an opportunity to keep myself ahead and try to get an understanding of the market and how we can be compatible with that. I think there's a lot of brainstorming that goes on around this. I think we can trace back a lot of the integrations that we're talking about today to last year's NAB and some conversations that started there that worked their way through the year and landed us in this amazing position that we're in now. Um, so I'm looking forward to all of that and the opportunity um, you know, to, to see people and, and have those conversations to get us started, but then to use Zoom as a way to communicate with them throughout the course of the year to really dig in and have the details. But it's a great way to celebrate, I think, and that's what I'm most excited about. Any unrelated tech that you're looking for? Uh, yeah, mics. so I'm I'm in the market for a new camera for my home setup. I'm trying to redo my home office, um, and it's the same reason for you, Alex. It was the it was the autofocus. I'm looking for just a way to get that working. And one of the challenges I'm trying to figure out is, you know, I use my office both for work and for presenting, right? And I want to look presentable in both contexts, but I need to be comfortable in the way that I do it. So I can't always have really bright light shining into my eyes. It'll give me a migraine and things like that. So I need to be able to flexibly, you know, transform that space with minimal disruption where I still feel super presentable when I'm just in a meeting because I think that's super important. But then I can turn up the dials when it's time to present on something like this and feel like I have a space that is able to do all of that, but is also part of my living space. So my fiance, you know, feels like this is a safe place to enter into and participate in as well. So I'm trying to find things that have a small footprint that are very flexible in the way that they work, but allow me to have a really great presentation coming in through zoom that's great we got one more question coming in here from uh, josh go ahead josh kaufman pittsburgh is it recommended for the spx integration in the meeting host what permissions and meeting settings are optimal for a production that seeks to utilize the app so i would check out uh with Softpix and Tuomo and, and, you know, and ask exactly what their goal is for the scope of it. I know that there are probably um, some things that they're, you know, continuing to develop, develop and turn on. And there are some things that are available today. I'm going to refer you to them, though, for the specific details about all these integrations. I think it would be really good to spin up conversations with the vendors. Um, I could certainly speak to the capabilities of Zoom Apps and the Zoom Apps SDK that they're leveraging. Um, but for specific product features and questions about that, I would, I would refer to the vendors. Next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. This is interesting. What do you wish you knew now about working at a large organization before you got to Zoom? How has your theater training paid off in that? Yeah, I'd say my background in performance art is the most important skill that I have coming into this job, uh, more so than my degree in software development, right? I think that, you know, the ability to um, treat the development practice as an artistic as an artistic practice. This is something I've talked about before, but I I don't think of like left brain, right brain, or even really interdisciplinary. I think of both um, software development and performance art as a single discipline. So I approach them in the same way um, that I would to creating a piece of artwork. So I think that you know being a computer programmer has made me a better artist. I don't do as much as I used to do, but I think that the ability to understand how media servers work and how video works has you know certainly impacted the way that I do. Uh, media design for theaters, but I also think that my um, the the skills that I learned working with 
performance artists and sort of the New York underbelly theater that I kind of came up in was um, critical to how I think about solving development challenges, especially at large organizations. I think we have to be able to think creatively to be successful. I think it's one of the best things that we have as human beings is our creativity. And so I think that that's something that's really important. Um, and applying that to the technical discipline and trying to think outside the box is a skill that um, comes from that intersectional background that I'm really appreciative for. All the opportunities, all the artists who took the time to sit down with me and teach me uh, as I was coming up, both in college, outside of that, my you know, some of my independent work. Uh, I'm so grateful to everybody who took the time because it's really, it's made an impact and has enabled me to do what I'm doing. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer back from VR Florida. Is there a way to have Zoom turn on lights when entering a Zoom meeting automatically? I'm just going to say to stay tuned to that. I think there's some interesting things and some interesting APIs that are out there and uh, more to come. I have to give you something to keep, you know, bringing me on for. So <laughs> I can't give anytime, you. anytime you want to come on, Andy, we're ready to have you. So Andy, thank you so much for your time. It's really a rare opportunity for us to literally have this happen a minute after it went public. Uh, that is that is as good as it uh, as good as it gets for us. And just to be able to have the person that's really at the helm of this really answer our questions and make sure we fully understand it. We just really appreciate appreciate the time. Likewise, I'm grateful for the opportunity uh, to sit down with you guys. I look forward to seeing you at NAB. I think we might sit down again, have more conversation and, and walk around. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. And then uh, just so you know, what's coming up next for me, I'm going to be at ProLight and Sound in Frankfurt. So if you're in Germany or in Europe and you want to stop by, uh, Jonathan and I will be exhibiting um, at the Future Walk at ProLight and Sound. Um, and so I look forward to catching you there. Otherwise, uh, I look forward to the next time that we get to sit down together. Absolutely. Thanks, Andy. And thanks to the producers for all the great questions to kind of pull as much out of Andy as we could pull out in an hour. Uh, we really appreciate all your questions, both in the first hour and the second hour. Uh, and uh, thanks to the panelists. Of course, we can't do this without you. Thanks for your contribution here. And thanks to the amazing team, the the, the small village uh, becoming a small city. Uh, a city with a G, we're not to the city with the H yet, but we're getting there. Um, uh, so uh, that it comes together uh, both during the show, before the show, after the show, all connected to making this all possible. We really appreciate everybody's contribution. Uh, we traveled 143,000 miles today, uh, 230 kilometers, and uh, 1.136 billion bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and uh, jump into After Hours. Congratulations, Andy. Once again, you've done 90 minutes of content in 60 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> he, he talks so fast it's so fast i hope it's still intelligible oh it is <laughs> it's like how does he come up with all those words so quickly? this is this is where the fun begins like this is now this information is out there it's gonna yeah. be so much fun to sit down with all these vendors next week and i think it is just gonna be a blast oh so, yeah it's gonna be awesome so it's gonna be a good year good year we're gonna see it one after the other i can't wait to see what happens at ibc